VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 3rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's producing the program, so if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial to get in the queue and on the air, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 vocm which is 8626. So as Brian Medora calls it, the second season of baseball, the Jays are in. Good stuff. You know, it's a bit weird to get in after losing consecutive games. So... You know, you, sometimes you got to act like you've been there. This is a, pretty much a baseball type of thing, but the champagne fueled celebration looks so over the top every year. It doesn't matter if it's the Jays. I love the Jays, and I knew they were going to do it last night because most baseball teams do when they secure a playoff spot. But, you know, you compare that to other sports. Like in the National Hockey League, many teams are loath to even touch the conference trophy, you know, on their way to the Stanley Cup Finals. Now, on that front, that's a bit silly as well. If one team in the finals has touched the trophy and the other team has not, the team that touched their conference trophy has won nine times compared to four losses. But the whole champagne business, I don't know, a bit much. Gets lots of traction on social media. Of course it does. Quick sports note in baseball. On this date, 1951, the shot heard around the world. Bobby Thompson hit a three-run shot of Ralph Branca of the Brooklyn Dodgers in the bottom of the ninth with one out. Gave the New York Giants a 5-4 playoff win and the uh, National League pennant at, of course, the old Polo Grounds. The shot heard around the world. Okay, what do I got here? Oh, congratulations, Adam Daw. Gander native, free signed by the Growlers. Uh, last year, in 21 appearances, 7 goals, 2 assists. That comes after we heard last week that St. John's native Jordan Eskett has been re-signed by the Growlers as well. Their season kicks off on the 20th this month when they host the Reading Royals. Good stuff there. All right, so for Canada Games enthusiasts, now, as we know, time flies. Before you know it, it will be August 2025 when St. John's and surrounding area hosts the Canada Summer Games. So there's going to be thousands of athletes and their family and their coaches and their managers and other volunteers traveling with the various teams. The organization needs about 5,000 volunteers. Here's what becomes tricky. They need about 500 of those 5,000 to be uh, fluent in French. So we know that we don't have a whole lot of French people as first language here in, the, in this province. 0.4% of the population of Newfoundland and Labrador has French as their first language. Only 5.4% say that they are bilingual. So they're actively trying to recruit French-speaking, uh, whether it be high school students or possibly at Memorial University for those taking advanced French courses. But if you are French-speaking, they need you to participate as a volunteer with the Canada Summer Games. There's all kinds of different volunteer opportunities there, and that's going to be here before we know it. I want to say good luck to the St. John's Soccer Girls Under-17 team. They're in Moncton to kick off the national championships today. So good for them. Good luck. Go get them. Okay. So the fight for 15. It was years ago that that campaign started, you know, to try to bring the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Now that has been, quote, unquote, achieved. Went up 50 cents over the weekend, and it is now $15 per hour. You know, it's a tricky conversation because we do know that people who are fully reliant on minimum wage, especially if you're someone who's older, doesn't live at home with your parents any longer, maybe a single mother or father with children, $15 is not cutting it. So where do we go from here? You know, it's the livable wage. Now, there was a consensus in the House of Assembly. All 40 members voted in favor of a striking a committee to look at basic income. In some corners, that's, you know, bemoaned as socialism or what have you. But poverty 
and the working poor contributes to a lot of real societal ills. It has huge implications when we talk with interaction with the healthcare system, possibly, possibly with the criminal justice system. So getting this right is important. So if you look at $15 an hour, the last report that we saw in 2019 about what a livable wage looks like, in St. John's, maybe around $18.75 an hour. Now, with so many of the businesses that pay their employees minimum wage, because not everything's created equal here. If you work in a minimum wage job that also has the potential to get tips or gratuities, then it's not really very accurate to say you're only making $15 an hour. And so with some of these small businesses, whether it be in the restaurant sector or the tourism sector, margins are razor thin. So it's one thing for a big multinational company to have, have make them pay their employees a livable fair wage for the work that they do and the determination they display. But $15 eight years ago is not $15 worth of being able to keep the roof over your head or the wolf away from the door today. So it'd be nice to get an update from the House of Commons, the members of that particular committee looking at basic income. And even if you think, you know, you need to be self-reliant, you need to be self-sufficient, you shouldn't be relying on the government. But again, it comes with associated costs, dollars and cents and otherwise. So an update from them would look good. If you look at every dollar that goes out the door to support people, whether it be on social assistance or all the boutique tax credits and all the subsidies and all the pot of money, we don't really have a good idea about value for money spent. If you put it all together, come up with a sum, and then break it down as to what we're getting, how people are being able to pay their bills, eat properly, pay their rent, all the rest of it associated with the increased cost of living, there's got to be a better way. So even in the world of social assistance, I think we exaggerate how many people in the province are receiving social assistance. I think we also exaggerate people who are uh, actually earning minimum wage. So anyway, let's get into it. The Employment Stability Program, this, you know, sometimes government does get things right and has good policies, regardless if you're a liberal or Tory, a dipper or an independent, this program seems to work. Many people out there, every time we hear someone talk about the fact of receiving social assistance, the question that people want asked is why? It's a fair question. Who you are, where you are, and why you find yourself on social assistance is reasonable questions. Now, there's always going to need to be a social safety net for all the obvious reasons. But when the encouragement to move people from social assistance into the workforce is also reasonable and rational government policy. So this one here. There was 170 participants. It was operated by the government with uh, Stella Circle and Choices for Youth. 170 people began in this pilot project beginning in January. 40 of them no longer require income support. That's really good news. Now, the move is to uh, fast-track this across the province to implement it in every corner of Newfoundland and Labrador, and let's get at it. It came with some financial incentives, and it seems to me they were worth the money spent because in the workforce... Paying taxes, all the rest of it, is a not only uh, a wise dollars and cents comparison, but it's good for all the reasons you can think of. So not only did we see 40 people move off social assistance since January, the money is not huge for the financial incentives that are out there. It used to be $125 to get the things you need, whether it be work boots or other type of clothing or equipment that you might need to move into the job you're able to find. That's moved up to $250. They also, for people starting a new job or continue working, the government payment is $250 after six months, $500 after a year, and $1,000 after two years. Seems to me that's very smart, seems to be working, so we can dig into that because it's, not, it's just not as fundamental as saying here's how much people need to live. If one of my sons earns $15 per hour, 
but lives at home with no expenses beyond his own basic needs or wants, then that's a vastly different conversation than someone who's living on their own, possibly with children, possibly with extensive needs for travel or commuting to and from work. So it's not as simple as simply saying, here's how much per hour. But we do know for sure, if you are earning simply $15 and have all the expenses associated with living on your own, that's not cutting it, but it's a complicated conversation that we're happy to entertain here today, if you're so inclined. Oh, also in that Employment Stability Pilot Program, there is an exemption in the formula for being able to keep more of the money in your pocket. We don't really know what that is. We're trying to break it down so we can add that layer to the conversation, but let's take it on. Oh, very quickly. There's going to be an update today or in the next couple of days as to whether or not the, what is becoming a notorious project in some people's minds for World Energy GH2, whether or not that's going to bring forward a uh, federal environmental assessment. We're not 100% sure what the trigger is for that or the triggers, but that news is coming. On the side, what's in it for us? You know, even if we just talk about jobs, if all four companies, and I think if you add in Pattern Energy at the Port of Argentia, we're talking about 11,000 plus jobs. The very specific number they're using is 11,694. Then there's also the impact on GDP, the increase or expanded tax base, money's coming in for crown, uh, crown land lease, water royalties. Of course, the trick there is that the water royalties will not be collected until cost recovery is completed in full for the proponent or the company involved. So you want to take those numbers on. We could do it, but we think we're going to hear early this week about whether or not there's going to be a triggered federal environmental assessment. Okay, moving into another industry. I think we have some time this morning coming up with the Association of Seafood Producers, Representative Jeff Loader. A lot of lessons and tough ones to be learned from this most recent snow crab season. So we'll talk about price setting panels and how that has to change, what have you. But apparently, the amount of snow crab dumped this year and it may be because of the late start. It certainly has some relationship with the increasing uh, temperature of the ocean, but get low to this. Year over year, there was 300,000 pounds of snow crab dumped during this past season. That's more than five times the amount dumped last year. So specifically, the processors say they dumped 303,202 pounds of crab compared with um, just 59,239 in 2022, a 411% increase. So of course, Quality assurance is a big deal, obviously, for appetite in the market to buy our product. We've got some quality concerns, whether it be the critically weak crab that have come from the bottom of very cool temperatures all the way to the increase. The warmest, or the, pardon me, the largest increase in temperature in North American waters were in our waters, where the largest snow crab fishery is in this world. So that's a problem. There's also issues with sea lice and barnacles and what have you. So if you're a harvester or a processor, want to get in on the action prior to our conversation with Jeff Loader, we welcome your perspective if you're, if you're on those front lines and have some thoughts that you'd like, like to add to the conversation. We can do exactly that. But that's an awful lot of food and money's worth of snow crab dumped as a result of a variety of contributing factors. Uh, one second, have a sip of coffee. All right, let's go to school. So there's lots of issues that we can broach inside the K-12 system, whether it be the no more public exams, which is widely applauded. I'm hearing very few people criticize it, whether it be about preparation for post-secondary or what have you. This story comes from the UK. If you speak with teachers, you know, not only is it trying to keep a lid on the shenanigans in the classroom and try to keep everyone engaged and deal with all the individual differing needs from student to student, 
but it's disruptions and distractions that are a big part of their day. I wonder how much time, let's say for specifically junior high and high school, how much time in the run of a day does a teacher have to deal with disruptions and disturbances because people are on their cell phones? As of yesterday, the Education Secretary in the United Kingdom has said they're banning cell phones from all the schools. I think it's a good idea. Now, if there is a possibility or the potential for one teacher or another in one course load or grade to say we're going to incorporate technology with today's learning by using an online application or whatever the case may be. Of course, if that's part of the day-to-day curriculum, those exemptions can be offered. And to allow the students to use their phones at break time, at lunch time, and that kind of stuff, absolutely. But I think that makes all the sense in the world. My teacher buddies, they describe quite clearly that they spend an inordinate, inordinate amount of time simply dealing with folks who are on their phone. There's really no need unless you're using that phone specifically because of the curriculum being delivered that day. So they're banning cell phones in the UK in the classroom. What do you make of that? I think that's a good idea. I might be alone, but hey, so be it. You want to take it on? Let's go. I'm also going to add to it. It's time for school uniforms. What do you think? Let's talk about that as well. Also, when we talk about the fact that just so many children in this country You know, school is one of those places where they can get a bite to eat. We're the only G7 country in the world that doesn't have a national school food program. So apparently today is the kickoff of Kids Eat Smart Week, and Kids Eat Smart is a great organization. So is school lunch. Woefully underfunded, I would suggest, but obviously quite important. If we know that there is a significant number of children in the country who are food insecure, it's time for this. In the Federal Liberals 2021 re-election platform, there was a billion dollars over the course of five years to implement this program. Now, we're simply at the beginning of the consultation process, apparently. This is the, near the end of 2023, and an election promise in 2021 still finds us at that particular uh, level of consultation with the public. Food insecurity amongst children is completely off the charts, and it's really quite sad. So if we have, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of... 33% of the people presenting at food banks in the country are children. How can that possibly be? We know one in four children in the country are said to be food insecure. So if we have a captive audience, and whatever the approach might look like, you know, cooking the, the basics of a meal in a central industrialized kitchen and distribution uh, after the fact, and preparation of fresh fruits and vegetables in the school, uh, and in combination providing a healthy meal, a meal period, to children who are potentially come to school day in and day out quite hungry. And yes, Kids Eat Smart is helpful, but we have fractured policies and fractured programs with different types of funding, core and otherwise, from province to province to territory to territory. It's probably time. You know, that's something that that can be accomplished. You know, food insecurity based on proximity to the market or the Costco's or the Walmart's or the Sobeys or what have you, that's something. But when you're in school, if we know for sure that that child, without any stigma associated with how much money mom and dad make, can eat at school with their friends, what that means for learning and emotional stability and all the rest of it, it's time for the country to get on track here, get on board with that. What do you think? How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? There's a few quickies we want to get through. I've heard from Amy Cody uh, in the news, and we've talked about it in this program. There's lots of money out there in the Federal Housing Accelerator Fund. The problem is getting access to it. Even in some larger communities like Gander or Grand Falls, Windsor, if you have someone who's the director of engineering and it takes that individual up to a week to fill out an application for access to readily available money, that's a problem. 
add that into the timelines for permits, and we've heard from the Canadian Mortgage Housing Corporation that we're going to have to build 60,000 units over the course of the next six years. There is going to be a monumental effort required between all hands. You know, even when you look at the residential construction industry and their representative group, even if we have this ongoing uh, focus on single-family dwellings, as opposed to some of the monies and GST breaks available for apartments and what have you, the problem they say associated with that is with all the materials required, the huge cost of importing all the said materials doesn't really make it that attractive for their profitability. They're in business to make money. So between the private sector, the public sector, and that's all levels, municipalities, provincial, and federal, we're going to have to hear some sort of long-term forecasted model, how we're going to get there. The numbers of units that need to be built nationally is off the charts. Basically, going to have to build more homes in the next, 30, uh, next 10 years than we did in the past 30 years or 40 years. So there's a lot to that you want to take it on. And a couple of quick mentions, oh, and in the housing world, to see the pictures people are displaying about tents in the various public parks. There's tents on the parkway across the street from the Confederation Building. Not good enough. It's simply not good enough. You want to take it on. Uh, let's go. So there's a, an election for the Speaker of the House of Commons today in Parliament. They can't proceed constitutionally without a full-time Speaker. Members of Parliament did agree last week that they would move ahead with an interim Speaker, and that person is known as the Dean of the House. It's the MP with the longest unbroken sitting record who isn't a minister or isn't a party leader, and that person is Quebec MP, Bloc MP, Louis Plamondon. So Speaker for the House, and that's, of course, Anthony Rhoda, had to step down after the you-know-what, the standing ovations associated with a member of the SS Waffen, which is also really an unbelievable story. There's lots to take on here today, but I also want to give a special shout-out to Sandy Mercer. Sandy's the manager for North Sun Energy. She has received the 2023 Star Women in, Con in Convenience Shining Star Award. Okay, that's for commitment to uh, leadership and demonstration of innovation in the convenience and the gas sector. So congratulations to Sandy. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Oh, quick one on baseball. So there's some inside baseball news that there's still ongoing high-level conversations amongst the leaders of MLB to bring baseball back to Montreal, to maybe see the Expos reborn. Montreal is by far the largest market in Canada or the U.S. without baseball and is absolutely at the top of the list of possible cities as Major League Baseball is looking at expanding to 32 teams in the next year or year and a half. But one thing they're all saying is that Olympic Stadium is not good enough. So here comes the private sector billionaires asking the province and the city of Montreal for money to build a new stadium. But anyway, for baseball fans, that would be most welcome. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, let's have a great show. That means you're in the queue to talk about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Peter. You're on the air. Yes, uh, Patty. Uh, how are you this morning? I'm doing okay. How are you doing? Well, I think very good. Very good. Can't complain. Uh, there's a couple of things I like to mention this morning on, on politics there. And uh, very briefly, now, I'm not going to talk about the US, but I'd I just like to throw it in there because I'm sure there's people down there listening. As you know, I like to fighting back and forth over Donald Trump and uh, Joe Biden. One fellow is 78, the other fellow is 80. 332 million people in the U.S. 
my God, you know, is that the best, you know, like the, the people of the USA can elect to uh, go around their country and run the superpower of the world, you know? Had you elect somebody, say, less than six days? Like, you know, like, uh, it's like a superpower of the world, and you're electing somebody that's uh, at that age, you know? I, I get that. You know, there's also some... Uh there's also some senators and congresspeople, senators in particular, who have been around a long, long time. Now, not to get into the whole bit of ageism, at some point you're too old to contribute, which is not true, because there's a difference in one person at 80 versus another person at 80. Their acuity, their mental sharpness, their abilities, their, you know, so it's all a little bit different. But I get your summary point, though. It is quite an extraordinary thing. And to add to it, and last comment for me, then I'll let you move on, is it's remarkable how it's so focused on Joe Biden's age when, as you rightfully point out, there's only two years in the difference because at this point, Trump is the Republican uh, leader and, you know, whether it be in the polls or coming up to the primaries, but American politics is just too hard on the head. Well, 65 should be a deadline, not a letter on. Anyway, in my opinion, and the other thing is, you know, if you can't think for yourself and you can't remember and you're haven't got the proper child without the depends, you know, like, uh, I don't think that's any place for a superpower in the world. Anyway, Patty, I'm okay. the one economist. Okay. But that is driving me nuts so on the news every day, the two of them. But anyway, the provincial government. Okay, this is my opinion. Now, someone else got a right to pick up, you know, rather than criticize. Uh, everybody got a right to pick up the phone call, open line. And I'm calling it because I believe in what I'm saying, and it is my opinion, too. You know, when Premier Fury took over the government after the White Ball resigned, and he took over from Danny Williams, I believe, or uh, Caddy Dunderdale, and, uh, well, she took the best from Danny Williams. And then was Paul Davis and Tom Marshall in between that, yeah? Yeah, and, uh, but anyway, uh, Fury is the only one so far that has made a difference. When he took over, this problem was in such a, a wicked bad mess. I don't think it was as bad as when uh, we joined Confederation. We were in the hole. We had a pandemic. Mossrad Falls had us in the hole billions, you know, over and above what it cost. And now, you know, like, we're getting our credit rating back. The people are working, you know, you got people in Cumberland Chance, I believe, 3,800. You got tickets going on the West Coast over Stephenville, Deer Lake areas with uh, airports and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, then, you know, there's so many more. There's Long Harbor, Argentia. You know, like, there's a lot of people working in Newfoundland that wasn't working, and they're getting good-paying jobs. And there's people working, like, in other industries, like fishing, too, you know? And sometimes they don't get met, mentioned. And by the Fury government, too, which is very disappointing. And uh, I just like to say, you know, and he got he, he learned fast, in my opinion. And then he got other people that learned along the way with him, you know, like... I think Andrew Parsons, you know, like is a is a, a good minister, and a Steve Cracker, John Hagee, you know, like and uh, uh, Howell, Krista Howell, and uh, you got other people, you know, like uh, that's there that could be good ministers. I figure if you're on the on the side of the government, you know, like Pauline, you know, like and uh, and then you got Tom Osborne, Sheriff Petty. He was a way better liberal than he was in the William government. So, you know, like. Uh, for, for they expect that we're going to change flip flop and go back to PCs, and this is going to get rosy within four years. Not likely. Not not in mine. 
Yeah, well, I mean, people will have their own opinions on all the political parties and the political leaders, and yours is that uh, Fury's done a good job, fair enough. It doesn't mean that there's still not extensive issues and problems and concerns, and I know you're not implying that everything is hunky-dory. So, you know, interestingly, there's new poll numbers out. I very, very seldom uh, talk about horse race polls on the show because, you know, when people say it's a snapshot in time, they're absolutely right. And we have no idea when the next election will be or which party will be represented by uh, which individuals in the various ridings or districts. But the numbers are pretty tight. You know, the favorites, the favorites between the Liberals and the Tories in the province are wicked tight. Uh, interestingly, there was a 13% bump for the NDP in this particular poll, bringing them to 21%. So... People, I don't know if you're in the minority or the majority in your thoughts on Premier Fury, but there are certainly a rocky road inherited and yet a rocky road ahead. Well, you know, look at my opinion. Uh, where, the, where the balance is there in polls, I would think if you can believe the polls, and sometimes you can't because people just lie directly to polls when they answer the phone or whatever. But, you know, like uh, there's uh, other things like the fishing industry, and I don't think Mr. Fury and the government had addressed debts. That's the commercial fishing industry. we got problems with the price-setting panel, and uh, you need to talk to the people who want the best in that industry, not the people who wants the most, Patty, who want the best for the industry. And, you know, like uh, there's processing licenses and everything like that, you know, and caps being listed and all that kind of stuff, you know, like in the... So they're going to have to, to do that in a positive way, you know, For the, and they're going to have to talk to the people, like I said, the ones who want the best, not the most. And they're talking mostly to ones who want the most. And that's not the, the right thing for the for the industry. But having said all that, buddy, uh, I uh, think Mr. Wakeham, I don't think, because I really feel that I know it, that Mr. Wakeham will win the PC leadership. And uh, no disrespect to the other two candidates or anything like that, but I, and I think that he will make uh, he he will definitely make Patty a, a good opposition leader because like as the writing is on the wall. Premier Fury and his government will they will get a, a majority uh, uh, government uh, next time around, and there's a there's no making me think any different because if it if it anything different than that. It just shows the people of Newfoundland and Labrador once was worst. That's what's better for, uh, for the island. Well, I, I'd have a funny feeling that if, if there was an election, of course, without a permanent leader in place for the PCs, and that will be uh, found out this month, if there was an election with whoever, you know, if it was Mr. Wake and Parrot or Manning at the helm, I would be surprised if anyone's in position to uh, take a majority government uh, based on what you hear, based on what you see, based on the polls, based on how I think people are feeling out there. It's razor's edge when we talk about popularity or negativity associated with one party, one leader, or another. But another quick comment on these polls. So it never ceases to amaze me how willing people are to say they'd vote for this party or that party when, A, we don't know when the election is, B, we don't know who the leaders might be, C, we don't even know what they're proposing as so far as specific changes to policy or innovative ways to think about health care, housing, or what have you. So people are just entrenched with the party they support. Maybe it's just because they're Tories and died in the wool, and that's that, or they're died in the wool liberals, and that's that, which is always a, always seemed to, seemed to me to be an odd way to approach who to vote for or what party you support. But anyway, to each their own. Uh, anything else you want to say this morning, Peter? Well, I haven't got time this morning, Patty, but I will call back at a later date on my opinion of the federal government, the uh, liberal federal government. And I say what I believe and what I'd have to say about 
the leadership right there now when it comes to Mr. Trudeau and uh, and uh, Christopher Freeland is a bit different than what I had to say about Mr. Fury. I don't, if I got a minute, I'll just say it now. You know, like Mr. Uh, Prime Minister Fury is going to have to leave. Hello? I'm just listening, Peter. I think you're trying to say the Prime Minister's time is up. Something happened. No, I just say, like, uh, uh, Justin Trudeau is going to have to step down, and Christopher Freeland, if she wants to stay as an MP, okay, but uh, she's not a leader either. And they're, in order to win the next election, they're going to have to put new people at the helm, you know. And uh, just not going to happen here. He had two mandates. He never landed a majority government, and he's certainly not going to land one if he stays there now. So it would be really interesting the party that he's hit up. He should step down. That's my opinion on that. Appreciate the time, Peter. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Patty. And take, all the best. Please, you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Well, again, I, I don't pay a whole, whole lot of attention to the polls. You know, for instance, in the recent polling here in this province, it's a survey, online survey of 500 people. So it's hard to say, well, oh, that's absolutely the way it, it goes. The margin for error is 4.5%, which also factors in at some form. Yes, there was a big surge for the NDP, up 13 points, which is not insignificant. So anyway, and on the federal scene, the Conservatives in poll after poll are certainly ahead, and in some polls, well ahead of the federal Liberals. So anyway, if that's something you're interested in talking about, we can do it. Let's take a break. When we come back, Diane is there to talk about family doctors. Don't go away. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Diane. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I am calling in regards to, well, as I said, I do not have a family doctor. And I have a form from Department of Transport that has to be filled out for my driver's license, and I have a limited time to do it. I have reached everybody reached out to that I can think of, and now I'm reaching out to you. So there are such a thing as some of the walk-in clinics that don't require you to be on their patient roster, like one, for instance, on Black Marsh Road. There's another one on Monday Pond Road. That no. might be... Sorry, go ahead. First, first thing I have to tell you, I live out in rural Newfoundland. Okay. I live out, I live out near Old Perlican. So just a couple of quick questions. Are you on a list to try to get a family doctor by chance, Diane? Uh, definitely, and I'm registered with Patient Connect. Okay, that's all I was going to offer if you were unaware that that's the route that you have to take. So that's a tricky one. What I can say is that uh, contact the registrar directly at the at DMV because they may be able to uh, give you someone's guidance because I guarantee you, Diane, you're not the only one who's in the exact same predicament with no family doctor and the need to fill this out. So yeah, that's, that's why I'm wondering, like, what, what are other people don't doing? I mean, I, I phoned old Perlican. They said, well, don't go to Emerge because you won't get it done there. No, you won't. And don't do this. Don't do that. I've reached out to, to our MP. I've reached out to Tom Osborne's office. Uh, I'm just, you know, I'm hitting a roadblock everywhere. Okay. So do you use email by chance, Diane? Yes, I do. Okay, great. I'm going to give you an email address that people have some success with, and maybe the registrar, uh, that person themselves, can give you some options or walk you through what other people are doing. And if anyone listening is in the same predicament that Diane is, let us know how you navigated. We'll get the information to Diane. So if you have a pen and paper handy, I'm going to give you the email. I do, Patty. Okay. So it's R E G. 
I S T. Yes. R A R. So registrar. Yeah. At G O V. G O V. Yep. So at gov G O V dot N L. Yes. Dot C A. So try that. If you don't have any luck, get back to me. And for anybody listening who has had to go down this path without a family doctor to fill out this medical form for renewing your license, tell us what you did, how you were able to achieve it. And if it's uh, helpful, uh, if we think it would be helpful to Diane, we will call you and give you the info. Okay. Because I, I, uh, I reached out to the Department of Transport themselves, and they said to me, oh, you can call 811 and you can get this done through a nurse practitioner. But you can't because 811 is all virtual. And, I mean, this is involving, like, uh, uh, like this check on your eyes and stuff like this. That's right. Now, did you try that, though, all the same? 811? Yeah. Oh, yes, but like they, they told me, they, they called me back three times uh, telling me to do this, do that, but they said, we definitely can't do it here because, because that's how I get my medications, it's through 811. Okay. And uh, she said, we can't do it here because everything is just virtual. Well, obviously not good enough. So let's see if the registrar can give you some helpful advice. And if not, like I said, you get back to us if you don't have any luck with that email address. And by then, guarantee someone will reach out to me and say, well, my father, my grandfather, mother or grandmother went through the same thing. And here's what we did. And if I get that, I'll relay it to you. But let me know if you, how you make out the registrar. I will indeed. Okay. Good luck. Thank you, Patty. You're welcome, Diane. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah. I mean... We don't know exactly what the number is. You know, there's a float. The government says it's about 50,000 people in the province without a family doctor. The NLMA, I think their most recent number is 136,000. There's got to be a way to reconcile it, even though I don't think it's really that critically important to have a specific number. We know that there's millions of Canadians without access to a family doctor. And to further complicate that, so the number nationally is somewhere around 6 million people without access to a family doctor. Different uh, programs and different ways to try to get a family doctor in different parts of the country. But I wonder what it's going to mean for family doctor shortage because we are moving down a path in the very near future that there's only, like for starters, there's only 17 medical schools in Canada, which is remarkable to me. Now they're going to add another year of residency for family doctors, moving it from two years to three years. Now we have amongst the lowest numbers of years required for residency for family doctors. For instance, in like Ireland, in the UK, in Australia, it's five years of residency. So, you know, while we have that shortage, and that is absolutely a crisis, even if it's for fundamental issues like this one, getting a medical form filled out and then add to it congestion at emergency rooms and add to that the fact that people might see their symptoms worsen because they didn't have early intervention with the family doctor and you know what that means. All right. Oh, uh, we're told Dave just got a call from someone that she can actually go see an LPN and that might have to be a fee-for-service type of arrangement, but I'm sure Diane will do whatever she's got to do because she's got a time crunch to get that done. Okay, so appreciate that caller filling us in about the LPN. Let's go to line four. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. I want to I start with um, Truth and Reconciliation Day, which is September 30th, and uh, it was a day of reflection, and I, I think an important day for all of us. Um, however, I I want to echo my frustrations with the fact that somehow magically we turned that day of reconciliation into a holiday for our, for our public servants, banks, and, and, and different services that we all rely upon, and which I don't think many people would argue uh, 
we need more from, not less from. You know, I, I can only imagine the indigenous communities that rely on services as well, not being able to access those services on Monday. I don't know how you feel about that. Well, I mean, I think it's a... Uh if the issue is not the focus on truth and reconciliation and what that means and how we advance it versus tying it directly to a day off for public servants, I mean, it's hard to have those national types of days without the associated stat. I don't know if that added one to the pile or replaced another, but anyway, that's not where my mind went on this particular issue. Some organizations, some entities uh, took two days. For instance, public libraries were closed Saturday and Sunday, so I'm not sure exactly what's going on there, but... For some, it's an important day. For others, of course, lots of complaints flowing our way about the amount of content associated with it. But, you know, that's also very predictable. Yeah, you know, and thing in learning loss, obviously, schools, universities closed as well. I mean, I, I just I just feel, and no, there was no replacement. It's an extra day. Um, and, you know, obviously, in, in some cases, overtime as well. Uh, you know, we, we we're not managing our own affairs when we just, create i mean it wasn't supposed to be a holiday it was supposed to be a day of reflection i i would i really think like you know we should have been everybody should have been working and maybe took an hour or two hours or three hours or whatever and had a had, had a reflection today but um anyway i just want to throw that out there that's not the main reason i called okay um i just uh october 6th is energy efficiency day so it's a good opportunity for people to reflect on that uh, i just want to put that out there so uh October uh, has been uh, declared as uh, Child Abuse Prevention Month uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador, and um, I wanted to uh, have a little discussion on that. We, um, Miles for Miles Foundation, are doing a bunch of initiatives over this month, and uh, one in particular uh, is a contest that we're doing, and, and resources will be available for download by the end of the week, where parents, caregivers, um, grandparents can do activities with their children and one specific activity is creating a, a safety circle or a safety network and uh, children parents will be able to download a, a little worksheet that people that children can fill out and identifying five trusted adults that if they're hurt or if they are afraid of something or need to talk to an adult about it they uh, they identify those through a discussion process because unfortunately Obviously, we'd like to believe that our loved ones and people in, that, that are in our family or in our circle are safe, but that's not necessarily the case. And, and, and it's a time for reflection upon that um, and also to uh, kind of help that child because a lot of times people just assume that their children would come to them if they have a problem or if someone has hurt them. But sometimes the, the perpetrators will uh, manipulate the children and create secrets, which which secrets are surprises are okay, but secrets are bad. And uh, and if you don't have these conversations proactively, um, if you have them after an event has occurred, um, you need to be sensitive that an event could have occurred. But if you have one after, have this kind of conversation after the event has occurred, the child can interpret that as as they made a mistake that they didn't tell, and that can further drive the the secret um, un, under. Uh, you know, so they're afraid to talk about it. So it's a very sensitive subject, and a lot of times we focus with all the media of on on these terrible child luring and cases that are in the media and, and internet safety, which is so important. But we need to keep reminding ourselves that 90% of child abusers are known 
to the child and 60% are people that the family know and trust. So, you know, you've kind of got to have that perspective of, of realizing that it's, it's not just a stranger danger thing. It's, 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 it's way bigger than that. Yeah. No, I think there's maybe two conversations, very similar and distinct overlaps. Like for instance, if we're talking about stranger danger, that phrase was widely used and rightfully so, but now things have changed with the advent of social media, right? So that stranger might not put you in physical danger today, but that stranger might put you in a really terrible spot, whether it be with sextortion or the like. So I think that that kind of changes the the who is who's who's at risk and who the dangerous person may be out there. You're absolutely right. With the stats associated with physical abuse, it's 90% is someone that you know. And so, but yet, given that we understand that and it's statistically provable, we still have conversations that, you know, talk about, I can't believe we're even having these conversations, but as a matter of fact in the English language, like pronouns, we all have them. Whether or not you announce them on your social media profile or otherwise, we all have them. But now we've gone from having, you know, basic understanding of protecting yourself, understanding the risks, understanding the worries, what to do when a red flag goes up. Now we've got legislation regarding some of these things, which is not indicative of the facts. You know, if 90% are well known to that individual and 60% are known to the family, then can we get back to reality about how these conversations should unfold in the most pragmatic, helpful fashion, as opposed to the, you know, the social divide that in many respects is manufactured, not real, it's manufactured. Uh, Tom, final thoughts to you. Well, again, it's, it's Child Abuse Prevention Month, and I want parents and caregivers, and, 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 and especially our education, who are hope, slowly implementing the uh, Kids in the Know program, to do whatever we can to protect our children and to prevent, try and upstream think and prevent abuse before it occurs. Appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. All the best. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, Dave, how are we doing? Today might be a good day to join us on the show in and around town, 709-273-5211, or elsewhere. It's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. What would you like me to do here, David Williams? Uh, Which one, sorry? Which line would you like me to take? Okay, let's do that. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Roger. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, sir. I'd like to speak about Lyde Perth. I was running for leadership there. i tell you one thing. My opinion of that gentleman is that he would do good for Newfoundland. Uh, which are the candidates that you mentioned? I'm sorry? Uh, PC party. Yeah, no, which candidate? Lyde Perth. Oh, Lloyd Perth. Okay, the current member for Terranova. Yep. Yeah. If he can get in there and he can... Re- uh, look after the place you wouldn't believe what he could do for the place I think he would be perfect and he get in leadership and be able to help us out and he will help us out he got that type of personality he's not there for himself he's there for the people what, what specifically do you like about Lloyd Park and when compared to Tony Wakeham or Eugene Manning uh, he's a, Lloyd Park is a straightforward honest man I know that because I knew him since he was a boy Right, and he grew up uh, in this neighborhood, and knows his mother and father, and they're the same type of people. They're honest, and they're always trying to help somebody or doing something nice for people. So that's what I know about him, and what he's doing so far in politics, and he's trying his best, but his hands are tied right at the moment for everything. So I think if he got into leadership there and got in, I think he would 
help us out in life compared to what the Liberal government's doing eight years now, the holiday doing is destroying us. You feel like the place is destroyed? Oh, don't be talking. You can't see a doctor, you can't do this, can't do that, but they got everything destroyed, the prices up, everything's going up, all kinds of excuses for the raise to taxes and raise this and uh, but what they taking eleven million dollars on on sugar tax last year alone. You know, that's 11 million bucks come out of the public's pocket in Newfoundland. For what reason? What are they doing with the money? I don't understand. Well, initially, when this was debated on the floor of the House of Assembly, the money collected was supposed to go to new, uh, newly created programs. That didn't turn out to be the case. And uh, second to that, you know, so it's going to Kids Eat Smart and a prenatal program, and uh, maybe some of it's going to the glucose monitoring program. I- I'll have to go back and revisit that. But... It doesn't seem to be working anyway, because when it got rolled out, it was a lot of confusion about what the tax would be applied to, what was exempt from the tax. Lo and behold, that didn't turn out to be accurate. Even some of the distributors and retailers were kind of confused going into it. The government thought that they would raise about $9 million, but they raised $11 million, which means that people didn't necessarily do anything about changing their, uh, their purchasing uh, choices or their behavior. So that's sugar tax. You know, if we're going to try to lower sugar intake, then maybe, just maybe, if it's a problem, and many people in the medical community think it is, is that let's make the manufacturers lower the sugar content. I mean, that's what's worked elsewhere. This doesn't seem to be working, you know, based on the confusion, based on frustration, and based on the fact they raised more money than they thought they were going to raise. What well, you're saying is true, sir. Every word you're saying is facts. And charity they want uh, run us so far down and make it so hard for us to live, so expensive. The liberal government too, is unreal. Right. There you are with this carbon tax. I don't know what the carbon tax is going to do to stop pollution. That don't make no sense to me either. Well, you know, that school of thought is pretty fundamental. Whether or not the current uh, structure of the carbon tax makes any sense, I'll leave that up to individuals. It's long been the thought, just like putting a sugar tax or putting tax on cigarettes and tax on booze and all the rest of it, if price point is the pressure point, then people will change their behaviors. Now, carbon tax, in my personal opinion, cannot be associated with home heating fuels. We don't have options, right? You can indeed avail of some of the government money, whether it be Greener Homes Canada or the $157 million here provincially to move away from oil if you so choose. And this most recent provincial announcement is more helpful than other uh, pots of money because you can bill, uh, take charge directly as opposed to pay money up front and wait for a rebate from the government. So... You know, there's ways where people can possibly change it, but it's going to take time. And even for this upcoming winter, with the demand on these uh, companies that are doing that work, they're not going to be able to satisfy everyone who wants it done anyway. So carbon tax on home heating fuels is a problem. But it's all about people changing their behavior. Now, also, it's important to add to to it. There is a rebate associated with the carbon tax, which gives people some cold comfort. But that's still after the fact, after you've paid the carbon tax. So we'll see about how that particular pressure point and the market solutions that, you know, generally, the conservatives over the years were all about the market being the place where all these issues are resolved. And basically, that's, you know, additional cost to change people's behavior. Has it changed anybody's behavior? Maybe some. You know, people talk about upgrading their windows and their uh, insulation, and that's probably a great place for people to start. We have seen more and more people move to the world of electric vehicles, for instance, which may indeed be driven by the cost of operating my my internal combustion unit. But, yeah, the whole upcoming election is going to hinge on three things. 
cost of living, which is a big envelope, which includes the housing and rent, and of course carbon tax, and then healthcare, which is not a federal issue, but the feds are going to have to be involved in some form uh, or some form or fashion. So you know, the slogans of axe the tax got to be replaced with something, and we'll see what it means. But uh, Roger, your choice of Mr. Parrot, I'm sure he's pleased. To hear he has at least your support. I don't know who's going to come out the other end as the victor, but uh, we'll see in short order. We'll be decided this month. Well, I hope to God he do. Please, God, that he get in, because I know he could help us. Fair enough. I'm sure he appreciates it. Roger, I appreciate your call. Thank you, sir. You're and welcome. have a good day, and God bless. The very same to you. Take care. Bye-bye. Uh, will I hold Jim until after the news so we don't give him the short shrift? Yeah, you know, and in the world of carbon tax, look, you can like it or loathe it, and the uh, tax associated with home heating fuels is going to be a problem for a lot of folks. And again, you know, people come after me when I say, well, it used to be not exactly something that conservatives hated. There is a, a video of an interview between Peter Mansbridge and then Prime Minister Stephen Harper about this. They were talking about the oil sands in Alberta specifically. And there's long been a carbon tax in play regarding the province of Alberta. So whether it be like Rachel Notley or Jason Kenney or Danielle Smith or whatever, that, that really doesn't really matter because if we're talking about policy, at one point the conservatives were not 100% opposed to the carbon tax. They just weren't. You know, Stephen Harper said there's a way to build on this. The oil companies in Alberta were in line. And they weren't opposing the carbon tax. And they even, you know, I don't think we've associated the tax with the appropriate people, to be honest with you. If we're talking about lowering emissions, even whether it be carbon tax or clean fuel regulations, let's put the onus on the folks who are the largest contributors. Not me and you, necessarily. There's going to be me and you play a role. But the industries that are the major contributors to it, let them play a bigger role. And, you know, even when we spoke with Pierre Poilier, the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada last week on this program, and he's talking about axe attacks. Okay. Then he goes on to say that, you know, their policy associated with reducing emissions will come with some incentives, which are already in play in this country, whether it be for uh, projects like wind, hydrogen, to ammonia, and also talking about carbon capture and some of those technologies. The issue that many people have here is the carbon capture is possibly another tool in the toolbox of the fossil fuel industry to see their lifespan extended. You know, because people will talk about you capture the carbon, then you've dealt with the problem. But the carbon capture technology, there's 15 of the largest carbon capture projects in, I think it was the, in Europe and North America. They were talking about the ability to capture 80 to 90% of the carbon. When they undertook this research, and they actually evaluated and did the math on what kind of carbon capture was achieved, it was much, much lower. The highest achievement in those 15 was 30%, some as low as 10%. So it's one thing to say, you know, very fundamentally, well, well we can just capture the carbon. And there's different ways to do that and different processes to try to capture the carbon. But once it gets away, it's gone, right? So that's massive big conversation, but we're happy to take it on. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about the fact that, yes, people who are driving up and down the parkway and maybe visiting other parks here in this area, and, of course, we've heard these conversations regarding Labrador, what have you, transient population, homelessness, people living in tents in 2023 in modern-day Canada to the extent that they are, major stuff. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. 
Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Centre. He's the leader of the party. That's Jim Jin. Jim, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on. No problem. Just want to talk a little bit about um, the minimum wage increase that we've seen recently, uh, $15 an hour, and talk about some of the other related issues, maybe around that housing, homelessness, and health. Um, it's interesting. One of the things that I guess even in uh, in my own upbringing and everything else, that was clear, and, and from studies that there is a um, there, that there is a correlation, I guess, between income and good health. That those uh, who uh, have a decent income tend to also have better out, better outcomes, and probably because there's a stability in their lives, because the, the opportunity that the ability to eat more healthy, uh, to, to live in good uh, live in a, in a stable home, and so on and so forth, those are all connected. Now, we have the increase to $15 an hour, uh, and it's basically, uh, you know, the question I've got to ask is that enough for people to live on and to put food on the table to pay rent uh buy, buy the clothing they need in some cases these people people who are living on uh, minimum wage or supporting families uh is enough for the me- uh, medicine and so and health care and everything else the other expenses and i would have to say not um it's in 2022 the finance minister, Minister Cody, asked us, reached out and asked us, what would we recommend? At that time, we said, well, start with a $15 right then and don't delay it. It's still not enough, but index it uh, and find a way uh, to make sure that small businesses are not bearing the brunt of it, whether in, 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 in uh, deep uh, tax incentives. It took a year and a half later, and we're at $15 an hour, and while that's a movement upwards, it's still, I, I would argue, it's not going to help the, the people who are uh, watching their rents increase, and they just have no capacity to absorb it or to uh, put uh, decent food on the table or to buy the school supplies and so on and so forth. So I think in, in this, um, uh, when we're looking at minimum wage, it's got to be, the word livable has got to be in there as well. And um, and then and then how do we make sure that the small the small business owner is not going to be uh, unfairly burdened uh, to take this on? Large corporations or large international corporations here. I can think of uh, discount stores that are making uh, huge profits. They can well afford to absorb that. Uh, but I think here it's about it's a balance. But at the same time, Patty, I think it comes down to how do we make sure that people who are in these jobs are able to afford a decent living. The other part to this, I guess, if from our point of view, uh, why we pushed for basic, a basic livable income is the other piece of the puzzle. I, th- You know, I do think the discussion around minimum wage does not include all of the variance nuances that need to be part of the conversation it was a year ago that minimum wage was 1370 and today it's 15 dollars so i i totally get it if you there's a lot to this yeah minimum wage and affordability is different depending on where you live too yeah it just is like if one of my boys is making 15 dollars He's doing okay. Why? Because he lives at home. His expenses are minimal. So if you are a single mother of a one or two children making $15, living on your own, of course, that's a major problem. Yeah. So I just don't think we've factored a whole lot of the moving parts in here. Add to it. Let's just use uh, the 
restaurant industry. Making $15 an hour also comes with the ability to top it up with tips and gratuities. And if we talk about other small businesses, we'll say, that their margins are razor thin, the conversation five years ago is different than the one it is today because their input costs are not what they once were. So if their input costs have increased, just pick a number. 12%, 15%, and their ability to pay $15 in a short order, say in 2019, you know, there's a lot of boogeyman stuff out there too. I will acknowledge that. In the province of Ontario, where they made a very quick move to 15, it didn't shutter all the businesses. It didn't see the the economy uh, turned upside down. But I think we have to be thoughtful. Making $15 at a multinational is different than making $15 with a workforce of three in a locally owned and operated mom and pop shop. But uh, let me ask you one question, because your son is uh, living at home and um, and and fifteen dollars enough. But if he wishes to move out on his own at some point, is that enough to support him? And I guess there is that's the key thing. Hopefully, uh, you know. And and trust me, I have I've children myself too. So I I think it comes down to uh, some studies have shown that it's becoming increasingly difficult for children, the adult children, to move out to find that uh, that to to be totally independent. I think that's the, that's the other aspect of it as well. You're right. I think there are other there and, and it's not just simply. Uh, I guess the $15 pick a number, it comes down to what is needed to live uh, for people. Otherwise, I, we, we have dealt with people here who are um, who are working sometimes up to 50, 50 hours a week trying to uh, uh, for a minimum uh, minimum wage and, and still barely keeping their head above water because of the rent increases and so on and so forth. But you're sure. right. It, it does have to, it does have to uh, account for those other, uh, other things, but it still comes down to the word livable. And I guess the other part of this, why we pushed so hard for uh, the province to start looking at a livable, basic livable income, and that's going to require, by the way, not just departments, but the federal government as well, very much on this. Just I before think, we get to that, yeah, because sure. that, uh, I do want to talk about yeah. that, is, again, not to say you're kind of making my point, but in some <laughs> respects you are, yeah. because my son, the hope is... With his university education, he won't be working for minimum wage when he moves out, right? So the ability for him to be able to put a few bucks away, and he pays his own uh, tuition or what have you based on the money he earns. So hopefully the things change for them. So I was just using my son as my own example because I know his circumstance. So if someone's moving out of their home uh, at $15 an hour, they're getting into something which will require a bunch of roommates and all sorts of uh, low-cost rent. And so, again, I just think it adds so much to the conversation that we need to figure it out because it can be done inappropriately but of course livable wage again if you're living in St. John's the yep. Center for Policy Alternatives in 2019 said it was about 1875 yep. that's no longer the case either <laughs> so exactly. you know how this works I don't know Jim are you part of the committee looking at basic income yes and we're actually we're the ones that have been calling for it in, in a private member's resolution and so it finally was struck about about a year ago okay inside that world of course there will be some that immediately say that socialism is bad how are we approaching the conversation because universal basic income is one thing in one person's mind something else in another person's minds because what i don't think we've done is come up with a sum uh, how much government money is spent on x social assistance boutique tax credits all the subsidies and grants that go out the door for a variety of people for a variety of reasons if we don't have a number associated with that and then try to compare or contrast it with basic income mm-hmm. i don't think we're even going to advance the conversation plus i don't even think people have a firm understanding 
understanding or definition of what basic income even means. No, and that's, and that's a fair point. That's been part of the discussion. But I will uh, go back to your point, first of all, as to with regards to where you are in the province, whether you're part of the disability community, whether you're uh, uh, a member of the indigenous community in the northern community, um, whether you're in Labrador, then obviously the basic income uh, means different things than, let's say, what in the middle of St. John's or in my district or whatever else. The other part of it that comes down to is you talk about the other programs that are out there. They, the, the, the status quo right now is costing us money and maybe more, especially in terms of it's a means-tested and uh, the amount of, uh, I guess, clerical work or administrative work in determining uh, and policing the, uh, the uh, who's getting what and when and where is already costing us, uh, costing us uh, let's put it this way, it's not, we're not, we're not uh, saving money at this point in time. And it's actually, uh, when you look at the other aspects, whether it's in terms of uh, people who are, have poor health outcomes, it's costing us in the healthcare system, be that as may. But part of that discussion comes down to as to what is needed then to make sure that people have that, uh, that all, um, that, uh, that have that basic amount that they need to survive, but also if they choose to get, enter into the Workforce that it's not clawed back dollar for dollar, and uh, and that and the other benefits are not clawed back. So that really it's it disincentivizes uh, the um, people from uh, uh, trying to improve on their situation and. For the people who uh, I've spoken to, the frustration they feel in trying to get ahead only to find themselves uh, uh, further behind. So here in this case, I guess, I, I look at uh, there's, a, there's a few other measures. It's not just guaranteed basic income by itself. It's also about uh, whether you want know, other supports, whether it's affordable housing, um, uh, whether it's still about having a provincial a pharmacare plan or a national pharmacare plan. Those are all pieces of the puzzle. I, I think in many ways, Patty, I, when I've looked at here, is re, uh, regardless of how you look at it, if you're living in poverty, um, you, uh, uh, you're you already stressed to the max. You already uh, have uh, your poor, uh, poor health outcomes. Um, you're already looking at maybe in some cases a, 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 a shortened lifespan. You look at if you've got children in school, children who are going to school hungry, uh, who don't have a, a, a stable home, it's impacting their ability. So I think in many ways uh, what I look at it is it's a way it's part of the puzzle in, in resolving some of these issues and giving people and families stability in their home. Now what that looks like for the individual versus the family versus a person living in northern Labrador versus a person living in rural Newfoundland, that, those are the things that will come out when the report is done at some point. And, uh, that, that, but it, it's, it's not just as simple as saying here, one and done, we're fixed. No, of course not. Included in universal basic income, before I let you go, yep. there are models out there where there are also, similar to the Employment Stability Program, yep. is there's, there's models that can be incorporated in some form that include incentives to work, to not be reliant on basic exactly. income. So that's got to be part of it. And this is not to insinuate that there's so many people out there that every dollar they get, they're going to spend it on uh, smokes, booze, drugs, and lottery. <laughs> but yep. it also has to come with harm reduction programs. Yep. I refer back to the Dolphin Dollars, Manitoba 
about in the 70s. It worked, but it also saw a spike in some of those societal ills. So if you don't couple harm reduction with more money coming out the door, then we're just setting ourselves up for disaster. Right? And, that's, and that's a good point. Actually, there's a recent study in BC. They gave uh, 50 homeless people $7,500 each, yeah. and they spent it on, didn't spend it on temptation goods, but they did spend it on basics. However, what they did in, in that study, it didn't, uh, it didn't include people with severe substance or alcohol use or mental health symptoms, which goes to your point then about harm reduction. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, under, I'm not naive to believe that one, one solution fixes it, but I do know I think there's, uh, there's going to have to be a suite, and you're going to have to a suite of uh, responses, and you're going to have to find a way to make sure that people who have mental health addiction issues have the support they need when they need it. And I think for the most part, I do believe this, it's going to lead to a healthier society. It means that we don't have to, uh, uh, we're, we're not going to see um, a further investment, let's say, in, in the justice system uh, in, uh, in in dealing with an issue, because I think that's misplaced as well. I don't, uh, I think, I don't, I think we're going to find that people are not uh, in the emergency rooms because they've probably got a better quality of life, and so we're going to find savings there. But I think uh, you're, you're right, hit the nail on the head. It comes down to uh, the harm reduction and the services that people need, because I, and I would argue, too, that anyone who is living out in a tent now, um, they're away from services, they're also stressed out. Those who are trying to put food on the table for the children or buy clothes, they are stressed. Their mental health is not, uh, is not at the best. So I think, you know, you're right. It, it's, it's, part of a, it's, it's part of the solution, uh, but I think it's a key part. And also, it's got to be a solution that allows people an opportunity to get ahead and maybe to make that money to, uh, that they, uh, so they're, they're, they're not in a precarious situation, but they can advance their, themselves and their families. Yeah, I, I read a story about this, and I, I believe the title of the paper or the piece that I read was The Political Theory of Universal Basic Income. Let's drop political and put it in policy, yeah, yeah. because that really just derails it before it gets going. Also, if anyone's interested, and I don't, can't remember exactly what year it was, either 2017 or 2018, I read an article in Forbes magazine about universal basic income. They looked at jurisdictions that had it in place, and... Someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but there was little to no impact on full-time employment. There was an increase of part-time work at about 17%. So let's use the facts based on how it's worked elsewhere before we simply say yay or nay to it. Because there's, this is a huge tectonic shift if there's yep. anything like this comes to pass. Uh, I appreciate the time, Jim. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much, Terry. Take care. Bye-bye. So, yeah, I mean, we can look at examples of how it worked with people, uh, whether it be full-time employment, part-time employment increased numbers. But yes, it's got to be all-encompassing. It does indeed come with some potential associated risks. Again, not to generalize and everybody who would be qualifying for this program will automatically spend it on things they don't need but things they want, things that could lead to addiction and then all the problems associated with it. So you can't have one without the other. You can't have these programs with comp without comprehensive harm reduction. You can't, because, you know, someone rightfully pointed that out uh, was quite some time back when I used the example in the 1970s in Manitoba, in Dauphin, uh, Manitoba, and the Dauphin dollars. It did not hurt employment. It didn't. And we've got to incorporate incentives to get people working, even if they qualify for this universal basic income. If, let's say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 27, 28,000 people in the province on social assistance, they would very likely technically be eligible for a basic income. And what includes people who are also working? 
But if you do it right, it doesn't necessarily make it a bad thing because if we're talking about it as a political theory and we're going to attach an ism to it, then like most typical conversations or most complex conversations, they never get going. Right? If anyone who asks a question about uh, immigration is a racist, that just ends the conversation because it's not fair and it's not accurate and it's not helpful. Same thing here. If we're just simply going to say, that, well, that's socialism, well, let's look at whether or not it could work. Like, isn't that our end goal hope here? Yes, people are politically aligned, and they're staunchly aligned, and they're going to be unwavering with their support for one party or one so-called side of the political spectrum or the other. But basically, you know, if things work, one, I don't care whose idea it is. Two, I don't care which party gets any support or loses support because of things that work. I just kind of want them to work. I don't know about you. You want to chime in on that or anything else under the sun, you can do it after the break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, you know, sometimes I have the sneaking suspicion that there's organized email campaigns uh, aiming notes at me. Fair ball. Bring on your opinion via email all you like. This one was in reaction to some comments about the K-12 system. And you know about the UK banning cell phones in schools, what have you. And someone asked why I don't continually bring up the, the issue regarding infrastructure and schools. Okay. No problem. We talk about it all the time. So we were told uh, in the most recent provincial budget that there was going to be four new schools, one repurposed and three new schools to be built, and one was going to be in Kenmount Terrace. So the announcement last week had, it was nothing new. There was no revelations associated with it. There was about $1.1 billion earmarked for infrastructure in the last provincial budget. $127 million of that was set aside for new schools, including Kenmount Terrace. So the question that people are posing, and I think it's a fair question to be asking, is okay, it's a growing neighborhood. I can see it from my studio. But when you have that type of announcement and it's not attached with, here's how many students we think we're going to service, because the student population is growing. I mean, the population of the province is at its highest since 1998. There's going to be about 64,000-ish students enrolled in K-12 this year. But in Kemal Terrace, we don't know what grades the, the school will be and how many students will be in it. So it's a little bit of a strange start, isn't it? Especially when we've got the kerfuffle between Portugal Cove and St. Phillips and the high school versus no high school in paradise. So, yeah, I put that back out there. We've talked about it many times. We're happy to take it on based on your call as well. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Lisa. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. Uh, I had spoke with you a couple of t- I spoke with you about two weeks ago about my dad, uh, Jamie. Uh, just a little bit of a closer to the story. He has uh, he has passed away. He passed away this past Friday. I'm sorry to hear that. I'd interacted with Jamie over the years, had the pleasure of meeting him a couple of times. So my condolences to you and your family. Thank you. He's not he's no longer suffering. Sad stuff. Man, oh, man. So, but thank you so much. And uh, to everybody who sent their condolences and to all the staff with Eastern Health, all the doctors and nurses. Thank you again. You know, I wonder how people approach this, you know, and again, we can only relate to our own personal experiences, but when you have that concept, and one of the comments you made, I've always found it interesting, and to be honest with you, I felt the same way. It's horribly sad when we lose someone we love, you know, when we're talking about a parent, but there is that concept of not being relieved, but knowing that the suffering is over. How do you factor that in? Because sometimes people might think it, but they're afraid to say it because it feels like, well, they're not sad, but it can be both. Yes. Like, I'm sad. I miss him. But he's been in so much pain. I mean, it was such a short battle with with this disease and the pain that he was in. He wasn't comfortable. He wasn't happy. So, but now he's, I like, I mean, when I put up the obituary on Saturday, 
or someday I said, I hope that you've got your glass of rum on a warm beach somewhere. His favorite place to go was Cuba. So. Well, in your mind's eye, you should put him exactly there. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, no, he, uh, and even bacon and bacon is bread. That was his other passion. Two good ones to have. Yes. But thank you very much, Patty. How are you? Um, we, I have my good and my bad days, mm-hmm. but, uh, we've, we've got the family and we are, we are taking the time together. Well, I wish you and your family well. I appreciate the update. I'll be at a sad one this morning, Lisa. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. Take good care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Oh, sad stuff. Uh, Dave, you want me to take the break on time before we come back for Pat? Pat's in the queue. He wants to uh, respond to Jim Din and cost of living related matters. No doubt about it. It's a conversation. Unless you are amongst the uber wealthy, the cost of living issue, the power, the purchasing power of your dollar, it ain't what it once was, and it's coming home to roost. And it will absolutely be dogging governments, whether it be conservatives or uh, liberal governments provincially across the country, because if we are being genuine about the issue it's very very similar conversations happening right across canada i subscribe to a bunch of newspapers in different provinces and i tell you what the opinion pages and the news stories and the crisis stories and the shortage stories are very 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 similar let's take a break pat you're next don't go away welcome back to the show let's go to line number two good morning pat you're on the air Okay, Penny, uh, looking to talk about the cost of living, uh, one public service announcement before I start that, Patty. I went up on Sunday to uh, Sobeys, and I'm advising anybody who bought turkeys on Saturday or Sunday, because they're supposed to be at 250 a pound, anybody to severely check their bills, because some people... And not you know they're not quick as math as other people might be. Uh, I got to the cashier and then when the, went through a five kilogram turkey. I'm looking at fifty bucks, five kilogram, ten twelve pound. It's not right. So after ringing it through, I sit down and look, and when I look at the tag on it, is the uh, the old tags were still on the turkeys. They didn't have them retagged at 550. They've been put in the bin possibly last Wednesday, Wednesday or whatever before you know the new flyer, and the old tags were on them and scanning in at the old prices. A fair warning. So you people should, should be very aware. Sure, absolutely. Yep. Anyway. Uh, you had something to say, Pat? Here. No, look, I mean, paying attention to your bill, because there's even a sign right there at the cash that says, you know, if there is a discrepancy between the advertised price and what comes up on the till, you will not only get the advertised price, but you might even get uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 bucks uh, in your pocket because of it, or, or 10 bucks taken off your bill. It depends uh, you on the store. Do, you, do, you, you do, Patty, but believe me, buddy, I had to fight like to nail for that. They said no. No, that's because of the guy went down in the back and he repriced the turkey. And when they came to the cash, he didn't say it to the cashier. And the cashier said, oh, there's two tags on that. That's because I retagged the wrong tag. And I had to explain to him, guys, there was never a second tag on it. He just put the second tag on it. Okay. And, yeah, I had to threaten, you know, to call the number or to come back the next morning where I said, forget, I'll come back when manager is on. But, oh, they didn't want to, like, Acknowledge their mistake by any means. Anyway, on the cost of living, Patty, uh, 
the problem or one thing, and if you disagree with me, please, you know, say so. It, it It's like Jim said, it, there needs to be a discussion on it. We might not all agree, but there needs to be a discussion. So one of the problems that I see right now, and I don't know if the liberals in Newfoundland help contribute to this uh, or whether it's all federal or not. Anyway, when when COVID started and nobody was wanting to work uh, at any field, is we brought in and we brought in it, we brought in. I don't know. I just got one year's number, which is over three thousand people. I think in the last two years we brought in close to five thousand immigrants in Newfoundland. They need a place to live rent and whatever. So that's driving costs up because supply and demand, we're not building that. It might take five or 10 years to build two or 3,000 extra rental units in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, housing starts in a good year, about 2,500. the housing crunch is not brand new, though, is it? You know, vacancy rates, oh, no, whether, it be, whether it be newcomers to the country, whether it be people moving to urban centers, whether it be clo- closer to health care, closer to family, closer to whatever, I think there's a lot of different reasons why the housing issues become so massive so quickly, and I think it's both of those. It's a, the population increase, because it, it's a good news, bad news type of thing, isn't it? The, uh, most More people living in the province today since 1998, the highest population levels in a long, long time, and the urban centers are growing leaps and bounds and not keeping up with the housing needs. Just plain as the nose on your face. So so uh, we bring in all these people. That puts a crunch, as we just said, on housing. It also, Patty, you brought in, and you were saying, oh, well, I'm only bringing in, uh, like we went and recruited into Ukraine, and then we're only bringing in doctors, and we're only bringing in lawyers, and all these people who... who who going to look at all the people, Patty? I dare anybody go down and prove me wrong. You go down and you look at these food service workers that are running this DoorDash or whatever they call these different things, picking up meals down to uh, uh, McDonald's, Mary Brown's, different delivering to people. Eight out of ten, eight out of ten of them, at least. Uh, immigrants. Is that a good thing uh, or a bad thing? Sounds like a good thing to me. No, it's not bad. Why is that? It's not a good thing. Why it's not a good thing is you're bringing on all these people to fulfill jobs that we want to take ourselves. There's a reason they're not filled by a student. If you offer a student tomorrow... 20 bucks a living wage. Let's say the living wage is 20 bucks. I don't know why the living wage in Newfoundland would be calculated to right now. Uh, all I know is the last time the studies were done, economics around 2018, living wage for Newfoundland, and I'm not sure whether this would be calculated as on um, $35 a week, in other words, work 40 or one hour lunch, 35, or a 37.5, half hour lunch. But a working wage was calculated at that time to be around 1855, 1885, a living wage for Newfoundland. That was actually a St. John's number. I'm sure, right, I'm sure in this day and age and inflation, a living wage would be over 20 bucks. So if you offer a student, if you offer Offered some senior twenty bucks an hour. Go down, work McDonald's, work somewhere, plus a free meal because if you're working night hours or certain times of the day, people will take that. 
that at fifteen bucks an hour, Patty, they're they're still below the poverty line. It's not worth your time. It's not worth. So that's why they're bringing in all these immigrants to fill jobs not, not that nobody else wants. Yeah, that, I think that's overgeneralized, to be honest with you. And, you know, I don't know how many people are doing DoorDash and what have you. That's their only gig. I, I do know some people that do it because it's flexible. They can do it when they want to do it and pick up a few extra bucks. It's not what they rely on in full. They take it up as a side uh, bit of side hustle. Oh, yeah, some of these uh, white people, and them, but all, most of these immigrants you see, no, they might have more than one uh, one DoorDash gig, or they might be picking up, and they might also be driving taxis in the evenings or something else. They got more than one gig, likely. Yeah, I don't think but, we're, no, that's, I don't that, think that, that's, that's the case, though, Pat. Wages. Uh, yeah, but uh, again, the whole thought or the concept is we are bringing in immigrants because some people come to the country on their own accord, not because we went to set up shop in Poland, you know, because it's just a natural organic thing. And the fact that they're taking some of the jobs that we are having a hard time filling with people who are locals is just kind of part of it. Not that we're actively trying to say, okay, let's go to Ukraine and we, we need a bunch of people to work at uh, Tim Hortons on Came Out Road, so we'll go to, the, go to the Ukraine and we'll go to... the Libya. That's not what's happening. I mean, that's not an immigration. I disagree, Patty. I disagree. That's what part of the liberal policy nationally and here has been. You're seeing the same thing in Ontario. Uh, And the the report is there too. If you look at that report last week that Buddy said in giving ratings on the provinces and food banks and being able to keep people out of poverty of a D- for Ontario and a D- for Newfoundland. It wasn't attacking the food banks. The food banks are doing the best they can. It was attacking the fact that in Newfoundland, in Ontario, the gap between the rich and the poor and the, and the increase in the number of people that are living below the poverty line is unreal. We've increased in Newfoundland 7 or 8% more people now than in 2019 that are living between the poverty line. Yeah, I'm not sure that... Pat, I have That's no idea... increase, Pat. Pat, I have no idea the connections you're attempting to make here. If you're talking about federal policy on immigration, it says it has nothing to do with... Uh, you know, minimum wage jobs, nothing, but nothing. It's very focused. Healthcare professionals, skills, trades, IT professionals. I mean, it's right there in the documents itself. There's never a mention of, well, we need a bunch of people to work fast food uh, regarding an immigration oh, policy. No it's mention. just not. There's no mention. They're not going to mention that. Do you think they're stupid? They're but, not going to mention that, but that's the people that are right. bringing in. Okay. I, mean, I know I know a nurse that was brought here. I talked to her, a nurse from the Ukraine. She couldn't get credentials, so she's working now with 16, 17 bucks an hour because she couldn't get credentials. That's a credential problem. That's not an immigration problem necessarily. That's a credential problem. I mean, you can go to Toronto, get in an Uber, and be uh, ferried about by someone who's a physicist. So we have a credential problem here on top of a immigration. Look, the immigration uh, platforms have not changed. The numbers have changed. We don't even keep up with the backlog. If we can't get people who are trained to be physicists or family doctors or engineers or what have you to actually do what they did in their home country of origin and do it here, that's a problem. But that's not, you know, we're bringing people in to work at Tim Hortons. I, anyway, I'll give you the final thought before you have to take a break. Anyway, anyway that, that also, like that, 
so we uh, those people also have to be paid a decent wage. I know three students in the nursing program who changed last year that were in nursing. And because they knew, okay, when you graduate nursing, it would be uh, working. You know, if I'm called in for an extra shift, I have to work that. First, if I work social work, okay, it's a 12-hour shift. My day is done at the end of the day. You don't have to worry about being working extra hours, being called to work extra shifts, etc. So they switched out of nursing and switched over to uh, social work. I know, I know at least ten nurses that have quit and have gone and working because it gives them better pay for that. And I don't know exactly what you call it, Patty, but okay. this, uh, where they where they bring the nurses in from away, these flight nurses? The travel agency nurses, yeah. That's a, a problem that's really, that's a big one. I don't even know how we settle that one, to be honest with you. Maybe it's not the pizza I don't know how we settle that one either, but evidently okay. if tons of nurses, like, and that's only in one month that someone mentioned to me, in one month that I had the numbers. In one month, 10 nurses quitting in Newfoundland to go, and they were hiring back, at least eight of those were hired back the next, uh, within weeks. Hired back by who? I, I do have to go, but hired back by who? By Eastern Healthcare. Okay. In, in, in other words, they quit today working, being paid Eastern Health wages, and then they're paid through this travel agency two weeks later when they quit and take a job with the travel agent, with a travel nurse. Uh, okay. Uh, I'm off to the break, Pat. Appreciate the time. Okay, bye. Take care. Okay. The issue regarding agency nurses, I mean, it's hard to begrudge someone who says, well, I can work on my own schedule and get paid maybe double as an agency nurse or I'm going to work for Eastern Health. Well, what do you think people are going to do? Or some people are going to do. Let's take a break. When we come back, Sarah Moriarty is in the queue. She's with the Workers Action Network. She's a community organizer with them. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to one of the community organizers with the Workers Action Network. That's Sarah Moriarty. Good morning, Sarah. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you on the show. What's on your mind? Well, just in that... (laughs) I mean, there's been there's been a lot of perspective provided today about the recent minimum wage increase to $15 an hour, um, and I just wanted to say that you know, firstly, our organization, the Workers Action Network, we have our roots in advocating for a higher minimum wage. We were formerly the 15 and Fairness campaign. Uh, for those who might not remember, we you know that was that initiated in 2018. And that was, you know, just before the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives released that famous study that said that a living wage for a single adult in St. John's, Newfoundland at that time was uh, 18.85 an hour. So, you know, since then, global pandemic, record inflation, now such a vast shortage of full-time work, um, rental increases that have been unprecedented that no one's ever seen in this province before. Um, you know, it was too little, too late, even back then. And I will say, even in 2020, when you know myself and my other uh, community organizer began work on the 15 and Fairness campaign, it was not enough then, and we knew that. That was a starting point towards what a true living wage would be, even back then. So to hear this increase now, you know, of course, it's going to help so many folks. Uh, there are so many workers that will um, that will benefit from this increase, but only ever so slightly and for how much longer with the rate that we're seeing the cost of living increase and it just being justified by our government by business owners it's you know 
what kind of benefit is that going to provide and for how long? I don't know what pace of play would be, I don't know what the right word is, appropriate or manageable because thirty over the course of 12 months is not nothing. It's not insignificant, but there's no argument to the point where if we're told in 2018 or 2019 livable wage in St. John's was 1875, well, 15 is nowhere near that, and 1875 is absolutely over $20 if we're using the same metrics. My worry in these conversations, Sarah, and I say this all the time, but I'll say it again. It's not the same for everybody, right? It's just not. And it's one thing to work for a big corporation that has huge profits and huge revenue streams and probably multiple revenue streams versus other very small businesses with their input costs that are up. I don't know how we get there. I think that there's probably an exercise that could be done prior to even moving quicker on minimum wage, was looking at what that UBI looks like. I mean, I, and I'm not saying I'm a champion for it or I'm all in or all out on it, but I think there's a better answer inside of that type of program versus a strict focus on minimum wage because I don't think that captures all of the complexities and the nuances associated with who is getting minimum wage, what's their life circumstance, what's their family support look like, do they live at home, are they 18 years old, are they four, 44 years old with a child, you know what I mean? I don't think we're going to capture all hands with just focusing on minimum wage. What do you think? That's fair. I don't disagree with much of that, but I will say that, you know, studies have shown that, I mean, I guess, yeah, putting money into people's hands regardless, that is going to be what, like Jim was saying earlier, um, alleviates the impacts of poverty, such as poor health, um, you know, not being able to see your housing, all these things. Um, But at the same time, you know, workers deserve fair compensation when they go into work every single day. And, you know, I'll say there's there are several reasons why our organization went from advocating for a minimum wage to just sort of a more uh, robust, direct action oriented initiative. It was because, you know, a lot of workers, when they contact us, it's like, great, we need to continue to advocate for higher minimum wages. It's essential. But at the same time, workers in these types of jobs that are paying these chronically low wages, they're not necessarily contacting us saying, my wages are too low. I can't make ends meet. Of course, that's true. And of course, most workers feel that way. But they're coming to us and saying, um, you know, my boss is withholding my vacation pay. I stopped being scheduled out of nowhere because our Labor Standards Act itself is so weak. It doesn't protect workers from things like, well, it does, it's supposed to, it ought to protect workers from things like wage theft, but it doesn't protect from uh, wrongful termination a lot of the time, right? So there's this fear that workers have that we don't actually have as much power that we actually do, that we just forget, right? Um, you know, there's a certain amount of pr- putting pressure on government for higher wages that we can do and that many organizations have tried to do and are continuing to do. And that's really what's put markers like $15 on the map in the first place. And that's incredibly important. But then there's also the fact that as workers, we can demand better working conditions so long as we are united with our coworkers. And that's sort of what our organization has taken more of a focus with. It's not so much, you know, how do we put pressure on government to, Uh, enforce even UBI, for example, or minimum wages, that is important. But what's also important is understanding that we have the ability to demand better wages, to demand better working conditions. We just forget that. Yeah, I mean, and again, I I think that when I think in my own mind that it is a very complicated conversation, 
I think it's, you know, added into the points you just made there, like live, pardon me, uh, healthy, safe work conditions, because you could pay someone $45 an hour, have them working in terrible conditions. So we've satisfied the monetary issue there, but we haven't addressed the health and safety issue. So that's where we've got to, you know, really broaden it out here. And your group of people like you do great work to highlight the, the shortcomings of what it means for reality for people who are unable to pay their bills, unable to be healthy, unable to uh, access the, the type of services other better earners are doing. So, again, they're all slightly different, but they're part of the same conversation about how and where we work, the quality and the caliber of our work, the pay for the work we put in, determination and commitment to a company versus simply focus on the minimum wage. I know the, the track that you're on, and I don't disagree. I just like to st- extend it out a little bit more to try and encapsulate all of it as best we can. It's, yeah, fair enough. It's definitely all connected. Um, and at the end of the day, it does seem like there's just a discrepancy between um, the power that a lot of these, you know, corporations such as Loblaw who are raking in record profits versus those of us who are, you know, allegedly at the bottom working, but we're the, you know, without our labor, um, they wouldn't be able to rake in those record profits in the first place. And at the end of the day, stronger wages, um, other forms, you know, stronger social safety nets, all of these things um, strengthen. Well, they make they make for better livelihood. So, yeah, you're right. It's not just this one thing. It's many moving parts. But I just want to leave everybody with, you know, this little bit. You can demand better working conditions. You can build relationships with your coworkers and get organized. You can assess, you know, sort of what needs to change about your working life to make your job better. And you can start to negotiate with your employer, you know. Never say never. And you might not necessarily need a union to do that, but that's never a bad idea. And if that's ever something you're curious about, even if it's just writing something as simple as a demand letter saying that you need a higher wage to survive, that is something that you can reach out to the network to do. And on top of that, sometimes I don't understand why employers aren't more attentive to that anyway. If you have that type of workplace, whether it be rate of pay, working conditions, what have you, you're more likely to keep your employees. They're more likely to be content. They're more likely to be productive. Because if I'm owning a business, two of the most expensive things are hiring, training, losing, rehiring, retraining, you know, adding workers' comp and payroll tax and all the rest of it. But a work environment that's conducive to happy, content employees is efficient and productive and profitable. Absolutely. <laughs> you yeah. know, it makes sense for the employer. Extensive research. Yes, sorry to cut you off there. There is extensive research to prove the points that you're making. And organizations like the Better Way Alliance in Ontario uh, that we work with have, you know, conducted that research. It's a coalition of employers who are determined to provide decent working conditions um, for their employees. And any, you know, it would be great to see employers in Newfoundland and Labrador take that route with things, right? Because you're right. Ultimately, you know, your, your attention will be better. Everything will be better. Your workers will be more productive. All of these things. Product, uh, productivity. We have a problem with that in this country. But increasing productivity based on working conditions means more money in the owner's pocket. The end. Sarah, good to have you on the show. Appreciate the time. Yes, thank you, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, that's Sarah Moriarty. She's a community organizer with the uh, Workers Action Network. Let's go to three. Good morning, Boyd. You're on the air. Hi, Boyd. Hi. Hi there. You're on the air, sir. Go ahead. Um, I'm calling concerning the washouts in on the side of the, the roads in this area, Trans Canada, um, in the communities from Arnold's Cove to Sunnyside, Gooby's area, especially. Uh, they most of them been there 
pretty well all summer with a with a marker stuck in the hole, or and it's getting late in the year now, and it's probably not going to get done. But the longer it's left, the larger the holes, and the more damage is done to the roads, which uh, the water undermines the the. the roadbed under the pavement and then that'll start to break away which is causing a hazard because once there's a hole there people are keeping away from the hole and they're probably going out in somebody else's lane and I I haven't seen much improvement in that this year again and uh, I know there's certainly some holes here that should be filling on the road before winter comes and they and you can't see what's there. Uh, I'd really like to see some improvement there uh, in that area, in the communities and on the Trans-Canada, because there's several large holes that need to be repaired. Absolutely. And, you know, some of the repair at certain times of year when it's a orange bag filled with sand and a bit of cold patch, I mean, it lasts until the truck drives over and then it's gone again. So not exactly a fix. You know, if they're caught before they get too big, you don't need any paving. You're just putting a probably a more coarse uh, gravel there so the water can run through it because it usually runs out in the same place every every rainfall. So if you put in a probably a more coarse material, the water could run out there and probably not do as much damage the next time. You know, uh, but it certainly needs to be corrected. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, if we're talking about the impact of water, water's going to go where it wants to go, no matter what. That's you can't right. stop it. So try to incorporate trying to navigate it or reroute it to, you know, protect the integrity of the road work and or the seawall and or my basement. Yeah, of course, you're absolutely right. Yeah. But anyway, I just thought I'd, I'd mention it because uh, there's certain areas that needs to be corrected. Fair enough, and hopefully those listening at those depots uh, hear what you're saying and get to work. Uh, hopefully so. Okay, thank you. Appreciate your time, Boyd. Thank you. Okay, all the best. There we go. Uh, let's take a break for the news. We did mention off the top of the show about the amount of snow crab that was dumped this year. Now, inside the total allowable catch of 121 million pounds, it's not earth-shattering number, but for context, the, uh, the amount dumped is up 411% year over year, so it's not insignificant. We'll talk about that issue and maybe some updates on the, hopefully, the restructured attempt to set an appropriate price for snow crab and other species next year and what the snow crab season looked like for the folks on the processing side. Jeff Loader. He's the executive director of the Association of Seafood Producers. He's up next, and then Rhonda's in the queue to talk about her sore teeth. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at the Association of Seafood Producers. That's Jeff Loader. Good morning, Jeff. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, sir. How about you? Not too bad. So let's dig into some of the reasons as to why there was a 411% increase in the amount of snow crab dumped. What do we know? Let's start with, you know, what is referred to as the critically weak crab. What's happening? Patty, I mean, you know, as we've said all year long, we, we would be upfront and we would provide, you know, the public in the province and, and all stakeholders an update on where we're to on all issues. When it comes to the uh, the higher amount of crab that was called this year, I mean, the cause of that was the fact that we were fishing in July and August. Uh, snow crab is a delicate species. 
Uh, it's not meant to be caught when it's 30 degrees. Uh, there's no question that that puts some pressure on all parts of the system, the complete sort of uh, chain of ownership of crab from the way it was harvested, harvested until it was brought to the plant. Uh, you know, we knew this was a potential reality. I mean, against the entire quota, it is a small amount, as, as you've stated. Uh, but it certainly highlights the need to have a season that starts on time and, uh, you know, have a, uh, have a system in place that's focused on creating value uh, so that we can work together to avoid these type of issues. I mean, nobody wants to have to call any crab and nobody wants to leave any crab in the water. So when we talk about ocean temperatures, the greatest ocean temperature increase in North America this past summer, here. So the temperature will say, for instance, the top 10 feet, if there was about 9 or 10 degrees warmer than usual, how did June compare to July? Because we have to factor that in as well, because if this is going to be a persistent trend, then of course it gets further complicated and exacerbated in July and June, but even fishing in the normal season, into June, pardon me, then was there a big change in ocean temperature from month to month? And you're absolutely correct. That is something that all stakeholders in the industry need to be aware of. Uh, you know, quality and ensuring we have the proper regulations to address increases in ocean temperature uh, is something we've communicated to the FAW that we need to discuss. We need to update uh, all the regulations, and we've communicated this to the province as well to ensure that the raw material that's being extracted from the ocean is done so in the right way and in the way that where quality is the primary uh, issue. Uh, regardless of the more general increase in temperatures this, uh, this year, and we've seen an, a general, general increase over the last few years, uh, it's not going to make any difference if you're fishing in 30, 35 degree temperatures. Uh, so, you know, we have a fishery that's supposed to start in April and run, you know, and normally is done by June. And, uh, you know, we're, you know, I think all parties need to ensure that that happens next year. Parallel to that, there needs to be a process where we look at the current quality provisions in the schedule uh, so that we make sure that critically weak crab, we reduce the number of critically critically weak crabs showing up at processing plants. We deal with issues like barnacles, new hard cell, a new soft shell, and those other issues. Because at the end of the day, the more prevalence of those type of factors, the less value that there is to be shared amongst processors, harvesters, plant workers, and auxiliary businesses that benefit from our fishery. Does that mean, even if we get uh, on track for a normal crab season next year, and what normal means I'm not entirely sure, but say the normal seasonal uh, approach to crab, are we going to have to see a change in the way that we harvest and truck and process? Because it's unlikely that the temperatures are going to reduce themselves next summer. So the responsibility on ASB and the FFAW and other stakeholders is, is to ensure that our system reflects the conditions in which we're operating. So we are very aware of this issue. Uh, we've requested that quality and the general regulations around the handling of snow crab and the processing regulations be reviewed. Uh, and our intention was to have very detailed discussions with all parties this fall on those issues. Because all hands are directly Im impacted. doesn't matter if you're a harvester, a processor, a trucker, or an auxiliary business, because this is the ultimate. Let's talk about quality. So, you know, when I speak to people who are in the industry, they talk about, I think they made reference to sea lice, but certainly with barnacles, what have you. How does the quality of the crab coming out of our waters compare with our closest neighbors in the Maritimes and their snow crab? 
Well, uh, first off, I'd like to say that the snow crab fishery in Newfoundland is the only MSC certified snow crab fishery. The Atlantic Canada does not have that certification. The quality of snow crab leaving Newfoundland going into the market is, is second to none. Yes, in Atlantic Canada, there tends to be a larger size snow crab and different things, but I don't think it's reasonable to suggest or even, you know, uh, make any statement that the snow crab, even this year, uh, the quality protocols worked. Process, processors do not let poor quality snow crab leave the plant. Uh, that being said, you know, quality is one of the four or five major issues that needs to be discussed in terms of setting prices and creating value. The higher quality product that is landed and is processed, the more value there is. So focusing in on that is a priority for ASP, and we hope it is a priority for everyone else. And it's not just about ASP and FAW. I mean, when you're talking about quality, that implicates not just what's in our collective bargaining schedule in terms of pricing, where you have reductions for barnacles and new soft shell, and there's other areas like new hard shell where we need to develop more protocols. That's a conversation that needs to occur with DFA, with the province related to inspections, uh, with DFO related to the timing of seasons and trip limits and those types of issues. Um, you know, we need an organized, stable fishery that's designed to create the most value. It can't be designed solely for the interests of processors or solely for the interests of the FFAW. It's about finding that balance. But one thing we can, I think, all agree on, quality impacts value and price. Sure. And I wasn't questioning the quality or implying that there was anything nefarious uh, on the go. I was more asking about the competition in the market, you know, where we kind of rank with our closest neighbors, once again, in the Maritimes, and the size of crab and the type of crab and the look of the crab and what have you. It was nothing to do with your association or, uh, or anything like that. I was just wondering what the market looks like. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, uh, you know, when I started with ASP, Patty, I, I had a briefing, and the one thing I had heard in that briefing was Atlantic Canadian or maritime crab tends to be a little bit bigger, tends to be a little bit more uh, uh, more of a, a, a color that leads to better sales. Uh, but the truth is that doesn't happen in the marketplace. There is a market for Newfoundland snow crab above and beyond what there is for other uh, provinces in, in this province based on sheer volume alone. Uh, so we're not worried about the quality of uh, snow crab in Newfoundland. Uh, what we need to focus on from our perspective is creating the most value we can from that very that high high-end quality product. Are we any further down the road in trying to figure out the price setting structure? Yes, I, I mean, uh, f first off, I'll, I'll just make a comment on the, uh, the provincial process strategic review team that's been put in place. Um, you know, our position all along has been the more work is done to examine these issues and establish the variables that should be considered in price setting, we would fully support those processes. And we are fully supporting this process. Um, the deadline for submissions is Thursday. ASP will provide a full sum submission. We'll also be meeting with the panel. Uh, on the question of the FFAW and the ASP, uh, collective bargaining uh, has not begun yet. Uh, ASP is still waiting for the union to get mandates to bargain, uh, meeting the, the FF, FFAW in the next couple of days. And I'm uh, really um, uh, eager uh, to get to the table. Uh, the time is ticking. It's October 3rd today. Uh, we need several months of intense collective bargaining to address these issues. 
you know, the other thing I will say is this year was the best uh, in a number of ways. Overall, it was not a good year. And from our perspective, we don't look back at, at this year and think there was much good about it, to be very frank about it. A lot of stress on plant workers, a lot of stress on processors, a lot of stress on other businesses, and, you know, in our view, uh, uh, stress on, uh, uh, on harvesters. Um, but one good thing that happened, which all parties agreed to last year, was changes to the price setting panel to ensure it was an independent chair for that process. Because there was an independent chair, there were 10 handshake agreements this year between the ASP and the FFAW. What went wrong was that one party did not like the outcome of one decision and decided to orchestrate what was effectively a, a strike, which is not permitted under the legislation. And, uh, you know, so we need to find a better way, particularly on snow crab. Uh, ASP tabled multiple formula offers this year. Uh, we are open to finding a resolution, whether it is a more sophisticated market-based return formula or an Berry type of formula like was agreed to this year, sort of semi-proposal. Uh, 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 but for that to happen, there has to be two parties willing to sit down and hammer it out. Uh, ASP has offers prepared on all species, and we are ready to begin that process today. A couple of quick ones on uh, the, the crab once again. Do we have a potential problem with the distance that some of the product is shipped or trucked from where it's landed to where it's processed? Uh, it can be a challenge, particularly when it's you know extremely hot. That's less of a problem when it's not hot. Um, but that is something that we are going to be looking at. When I talked earlier about, you know, needing to review the way, you know, snow crab is caught to the way it's processed and what happens in between, you know, all aspects of that needs to be look, looked at. Obviously, trucking crab in April versus July 20th or the middle of August when it's 30 degrees is different. Uh, you know, we have a, a pretty stringent regulatory inspection process in place. Um, but, yeah, I mean, all of those things should routinely be looked at, and we are always open to it. Last one, and I'm sure you've heard this directly and indirectly, and this is about St. Mary's. And, you know, a reinvigoration of that plant, major investments made, but they unfortunately had a cap on the amount of crab they were allowed to process. Now, they were lucky enough to pick up some excess crab to keep the plant going for as much, I think, as 4 million pounds went through. But then there's other places with no cap. Help us understand why that's the way it is. You know, there will be the insinuation that you got this big corporate concentration and there's one set of rules for Royal Greenland versus the operators in St. Mary's. Why is that cap in place? So uh, I, I think it's important we go back to the issuing of that license where there was a business case provided from St. Mary's that they could operate a plant at 2.5 million pounds. The issue around processing, because yes, uh, Patty, I do hear about this uh, just about daily from somebody in Newfoundland in one place or another. And I think it's important that we have, you know, a really good conversation around both the context and what the policy objectives of new processing are. So right now in this province, there's a severe labor shortage when it comes to workers for uh, snow crab plants and other species. We're increasingly relying on foreign temporary workers. Over 100 or so worked at St. Mary's this year. We have an excess of processing capacity. If 
the ASP and its members had known there was going to be a very long delay in the fishery this year. Uh, plants, at least four or five of them, who didn't run two shifts could have had two shifts. Uh, so there isn't a shortage of processing capacity for snow crab in this province. There's no factual evidence for that. The other contextual issue is the financial viability of existing processing companies, many of, uh, of which faced a really unprecedented financial situation in 2022 going into 2023. So that's sort of, you know, some important context, which raises the question around what's the policy intent of enhanced processing? Is it the redistribution of employment from one place in Newfoundland to another? Is it to create a processing sector that is solely designed to ensure that there's enough capacity to process whatever amounts of fish that harvesters catch in the first week of the season? Processing is a financial, uh, uh, you know, a well, not a financial complication. It is difficult and costly to set up a processing plant. People make investments. And, you know, as, and if the position of other stakeholders is, the only thing that matters is that there's enough capacity at any given moment in time to process what harvesters feel should be processed at that time, that position is basically very one-sided. We need a system that's designed in a processing sector that extracts the most amount of value from the fishery so that it increases the overall value for everybody involved. Increasing processing capacity without considering, for example, the impact on existing plant workers and existing processing facilities, there's a set quota. It's not like you're issuing new processing licenses and then you're adding 20, 30, 40,000, you know, a million pounds of snow crab to, because it can't be processed. So I completely am sympathetic to St. Mary's and many other communities in Newfoundland that would love to have 10, 30 million pounds of snow crab to process to create employment. But there are problems with that. It's taking away uh, employment from other parts of the province. And, uh, you know, you're making decisions that ultimately uh, may undermine the actual common pursuit we should have, which is creating value. Yeah, well, I guess the tack is the tack. That's undeniable. And, of course, there might be a difference with plants that are very focused on crab or versus multi-species uh, plants versus big corporations versus small investment pockets. You know, so I guess there's a lot of complexity. Very quickly, in an effort to rejig the price setting, you know, it's, we have talked about this in the past, it's about an equitable piece of the market share. So will your members be releasing that information, whether it be about the amount they dumped, the quality they produced, their yields, their what would be an equitable market share as we come up? Because you and I have talked about this, and that seems to be where this is going to land. Will that information be released to the other side, in this case the FFAW, so we can get down to the brass tacks? Yeah, uh, we've already released an extraordinary amount of information uh, over two months this year dealing with all the issues you talked about. Uh, we made three offers on a formula that included uh, third-party proxy setting of prices. Uh, we've done all of that already. We will do it all again. We will be addressing all of those issues to the strategic review team. Uh, and when the FFAW is ready to receive that information in the form of collective bargaining, we are more than happy to do that. But it has to be a two-way street. Uh, it can't simply be processors provide all kinds of information to 
for the FFAW and the FFAW not be prepared to address those issues. So if we're going to talk about barnacles, we're going to talk about quality issues, we need a commitment that will develop a system that reflects that in the value uh, um, and try to eliminate those quality issues so that we can extract more value and we need a system that shares that value. We did settle uh, numerous species based on you know formula-like systems this year. Uh, from our perspective, there's you know um, a lot of room in that middle ground to find a solution. Uh, but if okay. if there's a party that is asking for something that no one uh, could actually you know you know come to a conclusion that that return is viable in the market and then based on effectively what you feel you deserve, uh, you know, we're going to have an issue. I appreciate the time, Jeff. Thanks for this. Thank you, buddy. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Jeff Loader, Executive Director at ASP. Time for a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Well, based on the conversation with Mr. Loader from ASP, and this was from apparently a Facebook post, and it's talking about uh, the number of people working in the industry processing snow crab and what have you, number of plants. Quota levels. The Newfoundland Labrador crab quota peaked in 1999 at 70,000 tons. The 2023 quota was 54,727 tons. The last time quotas were above this level was in 2004-05. Processing plant employment. In 2005, equaled 13,758 plant workers. 2005 equaled 32 plant holding crab processing licenses. 2021, 6,511 plant workers. 2021 equaled 11 crab plants. So the concept there is that more plants doesn't necessarily mean less work. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. That's where we got that piece. That was from Ivan. Appreciate that, sir. Wherever you see him open line, you know what to do. Follow us there. And as this writer says, definitely minor in the grand scheme of things, but can anyone explain why the Tim Hortons hockey cards are a dollar more than Newfoundland than anywhere else in the Maritime? They'll blame it on distribution, of course, but that's the basics. Okay, let's see. Email address is openline.feocm.com. When we come back, Rhonda's still there to talk about where she can get her teeth removed. If you have any answers for that, you can chime in via social media or email during the news. And Paul Din, he's the PC member for Topsail Paradise. An update on a school in his district. I'm guessing that's Frank Roberts, is it? Anyway, let's take a break. Don't go away. Get lost in the music of legendary artists like Elton John, The Beatles, and more. Join Claudette Barnes every Sunday from 12 to 1 p.m. and relive fond memories through the power of music with Sunday Melodies on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Rhonda. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm the sore tooth lady today. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, so since... Uh, the CBC thing, and I called in first with you. Uh, that May 24th that followed that, I was diagnosed with a, or whatever, uh, broken teeth that line was next to my sinus, so I had to have it removed. So I got it removed uh, December. So May 24th to December, I had two teeth that were broken, infected, jagged, whatever, and uh, in December I had them removed. Okay. Then more issues started. Uh, and then I went to see several other dentists and doctors. I see my family dentist. And uh, when I went to see him, he looked the area where the teeth were. And he said, the area looks good. And then he, uh, I was quite upset at the time, obviously. There was a few other things on the go. So I was teary-eyed. And he well, how is your mental health? And I'm like, oh, and I have to say, I'm not complaining. I'm just explaining this. And at that point... When he questioned my mental health, I'm like, oh, my God, am I really as sick as I thought I was? So he suggested an Eddie rinse, 
didn't charge me for the visit, and I went home. And, of course, I didn't get better. And uh, my uh, mother-in-law-to-be a week or a day or whatever later suggested, like, you know, I might have something on the go. So I got a round of antibiotics, and that started healing stuff or made me feel better. And then another few weeks passed, and it was more antibiotics. My teeth are chipping away. I had several uh, molds done back before I lost my private insurance. So all my front teeth have disintegrated. There are no cavities on my eye tooth, a black cavity. I assume it's an abscess, and there's several more from throughout my mouth, and I assume they're an abscess because, forgive me if this is disgusting, uh, but I have to steam my mouth, my face daily. More hours of the day, I'm over a steaming kettle, uh, pushing, syringing, getting rid of whatever you can imagine comes out of your sinus and whatever kind of yucky that is. uh, the most recent uh, trip, I went to my family doctor, and he looked me over, and he diagnosed me with a bunch of other things, and uh, I don't know, uh, maybe dental was included there, but uh, uh, nothing was suggested, and then I said, well, maybe I should see an ENT specialist. I went and seen an ENT specialist, and I'm waiting for a CAT scan there. Please interrupt any time if I'm dragging on, so... Uh, then I heard your caller a week or two ago, Patty. God love his heart. He called in a bad abscess, as I believe. That poor man, when I heard him talk, and I'm so conditioned to whatever's on the go, it's like when you have this stuff that's on the go, it becomes chronic. And it might be yucky to somebody else who haven't had it for a while, but I've been living with this like for a year and a half. So I just wake up and my whole head is congested. Everything is infected. So I really think I'm just managing every day and I'm slowly getting better until I hear your God love his heart holler calling a bit abscesses. And I thought, my God, could this be what's wrong with me? So immediately I text my family doctor and I and I said the same thing in a text to him because I can never ever reach or see him. So by 2 o'clock that afternoon, I had a prescription for antibiotics. Again, that's like nine, eight or nine in the last year and a half. And thank God they are working. But my point of being here is I'm a year and a half. When I'm 54 and a half years old, just like I was 10, now going to be 11. When I was a little girl in Goose Bay, I would go to a dental clinic. And I'm pretty sure it was provincially funded dental clinic. It was okay. private. So we're, I'm still on a waiting list of teeth removed at the Atlantic or the, the surgery place down the East End. I've seen dentists. I, I, I'm so sick of saying this so many times to so many people, the Medicaid, the, the dentists and doctors. So now I have to ask you and your, your audience, Patty. Where do I go? All my teeth need to be removed. I am just, I'm lucky to be here because if this infection got in my bloodstream, like my mother-in-law to be said, I mightn't be here. She's had relatives that happened to. I know there's more people out there that need to be seen that are in worse shape than me. But thank God I can call in and express myself. Can you please speak? <laughs> thank you. Well, I'm I'm not sure exactly what you'd like me to say. I know that for folks, for instance, that don't have any private dental coverage while they're waiting for the new federal program to kick in for their age group, if they qualify, of course. So, look, I've been in the same boat uh, over the years. I've had lots of trouble with my teeth starting when I was a kid, so I'm 
painfully familiar with teeth problems. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say in summary, Rhonda? I would like to know, I, like I'm a diabetic and an anastomy, so I'm not trying to put myself above anybody else. But if the government is so focused on all these chronic conditions and get rid of them and trying to mitigate, you know, our, all our health damages, if I would have got in and got an X-ray a year ago and probably got seen to a lot sooner, if I got my teeth removed, which needed at that diagnosis a year ago, they knew I needed my teeth removed. I'm still waiting to have my teeth removed. I'm continuously getting sicker. I'm eight, I'm 98 pounds. I've lost 25 pounds since I've been on CBC. I need help, and I'm reaching out to anybody that can direct me. We as patients need to help each other, and we need patients for patients. We need. I just need help, and if there's anybody that can reach out to you or me and give me some, I just I'll pay for it. I need to get back to living and not trying to keep myself alive by getting rid of the gut in my head. If there's anybody out there can reach me and tell me where I can get in to get my teeth removed because it's killing me. Rhonda, I would greatly appreciate it. I, I hope that this happens for you ASAP and if someone, you know, whether it be a dental clinic who's listening wants to tell us that they can take care of you, if they tell us, we'll tell you. No problem at all. Okay. Thank you so much and all the best to you and your listeners. You take care of yourself. Thank you so much. Okay, Rhonda. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. Yeah, if anyone knows where she can get help immediately, and she's willing to pay, she said, so that makes a difference. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the PC member for Topsail Paradise. That's Paul Din. Good morning, Paul. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. What's on your mind? Uh, that's a pretty sad story, listening to Rhonda. Yep. Hopefully uh, she finds some help. Uh, Patty, um, I always have you playing in the background here in the office, and I heard you mention uh, uh, high school paradise and uh, and came out terrorist recent announcement, and I thought I'd call in and, and just give you an update on uh, what's been happening here in paradise uh, in terms of a high school. Um, there's a very, very uh, good group of parents that have come together and uh, they formed a committee, uh, Paradise Needs a High School, and they're really pushing now for uh, an announcement in the upcoming budget on a high school for Paradise, which would also help the neighboring communities of uh, uh, this Mount Pearl Senior High and uh, Holy Spirit. And, uh, you know, they come together, they're meeting on a regular basis. Uh, they have uh, produced a brochure that will be going out that uh, provides information on uh, why it's needed here. Uh, they're planning a uh, sit-in at the uh, House of Assembly when it opens on uh, on August or sorry, October 16th. They've done a lot with media, getting out there, getting the message out, getting the facts out. Um, you know they're they're really really pushing uh, for this, and uh, you know every time they hear an announcement or there's an infrastructure announcement coming on education, they they are always fingers crossed, toes crossed, hoping hoping that the announcement would be related to a high school in paradise. And you know they've been quite quite uh, clear. You know no one begrudges any other community uh, a school, but when you're been deferred for eight years on a school that was proven to be needed and is actually more needed as time goes on, as we see population increases in, in the area, you know, and they see a school in Portugal Cove, uh, you know, essentially announced out of the blue, English school district wasn't aware of it. 
And even the recent announcement with the Kemal Terrace, again, not begrudging them, but when, when you announce, you know, tens of millions of dollars for a new school and you cannot yet speak about how that's going to be configured, you know, it makes you wonder on, on the need. And I think the parents here, you know, are not going away. They're a very impressive and motivated group, and they're going to keep pushing for a high school. And we're in, the, you know, Paradise and CBS are, are growing immensely. Uh, in fact, it was only last week, there was, or a week before, there was another uh, 111 house subdivision announced in Paradise. You know, kids are going to have to go somewhere because the schools on the neighboring communities are, are hitting 900 to 1,000 students, and that's far too many in those schools. So I, you know, I applaud the group. Uh, they're very uh, motivated, and they're going to keep pushing until they get an announcement in Budget 2024. Well, I mean, the Kemal Terrace issue was addressed in the provincial budget. The Paradise High School versus Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, and look, my family's from the Cove, so I've got no problem with them getting a high school. But Perfect. the whole background of this story is very, very clear. You know, the district itself had a priority in Paradise. The conversation did not include Portugal Cove, St. Phillips. The numbers of children being bussed out from the Cove to go to say PWC versus Paradise to go to high schools in the surrounding area are clear. I mean, this is not about favoring one community or another. If we're using data to make good decisions, then the data's there. So (laughs) they don't need to say much more than, here's what we were told by the actual government. (laughs) It's not about putting words in people's mouth. It's not about misconstruing data, because that's possible. But this is laid out clearly by the district, clearly by the department. So there's... They, yeah. They've got a fair case to make here. No, no, there is a fair case. And, and again, you know, no one begrudges Portugal Cove or Kemal Terrace or, uh, you know, a school. But every time we hear an announcement coming, or, uh, they they are really, really hoping it's going to be uh, a paradise. So, you know, they're not going away. They are a very competent, a very well-spoken group and very well-motivated. And, uh, you know, they're not going to stop now until, and, and myself included and, and, and all the other local politicians here, I uh, really aren't going to stop until we, we uh, get a school here because it's going to help not just Paradise, but help Mount Pearl students as well as the Holy uh, Family CBS students, uh, Holy Spirit, sorry. So, I mean, this is something that has to happen. It needs to happen. And, uh, you know, it, it, the situation will not get any better as you see places like Galway and Southlands, uh, you know, increase in population. So uh, I'm hoping and I know the parents will continue on this to make sure that uh, there is an announcement for a high school in the area. Appreciate the time, Paul. Thanks for the call. Thank you, Patty. I always appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Paul Din, PC member for Topsail Paradise. Let's take our final break of the morning. Rob's there. He's experiencing some problems with Eastern Health and timeline for delivery of supplies. Then Tina wants to respond to what she heard from Nate President Jerry Earl regarding the Auditor General's report on the Office of the High Sheriff. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Rob, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Very well, thanks. How about you? Good, buddy. Um, let's see, I got a bit of a uh, problem with Eastern Health here now. Um, I do a little bit of home, I do home care work, and I have a missus here that I look after. And um, so two weeks ago, or a week and a half ago, um, an occupational therapist came in, said she needed so much work done in her place, and there was medical supplies that were needed. Um, I called the medical supply place, and they said, yeah, they've got nothing. Um, this missus needs this none done now. Um, she needs her bathroom renovated, and 
we've got a worker who's coming in to do that. Um, but the supplies aren't here and they have no idea what's going on. So the Eastern health people are not, they're not talking with people. And it's, it's really frustrating because this Mrs. needs to have her bathroom done. Um, so what sort of supplies are not available? Um, simple stuff, commode is the biggest thing because her toilet is going to be out of service for at least a day, maybe two. And she just needs a commode, but they, they can't supply it because there's nothing, because when you go to Eastern Medical Supplies, they need a reference from Eastern Health and the person that was uh, doing it um, has not submitted anything to them and you know this this you know she's an elderly lady and she needs this help i'm not sure why there would be the inability to get a commode that sounds a little bit odd yeah well that's that's what i'm saying you know um so like i don't know if it's through eastern health or eastern medical supplies um an occupational therapist came in and said, yes, she needs all this stuff, and yet there's nothing gone to Eastern Medical Supplies to put this through. Um, it's, just, it's just beyond me that you have to go through all these hoops and reels to, to get this stuff. You know, I, I just don't know where to turn to. I'm not really sure either, because it sounds like some pretty basic stuff. Yeah, it is. It's, it's really basic. Yeah, well, obviously there's community groups out there listening that have these types of supplies, whether it be, I don't know, maybe try like the Red Cross or something, because this is pretty readily available stuff. Yeah, you know, like they've got this stuff in, you know, in turn sitting in a warehouse somewhere. Um, And we just can't get at it. You know, they they turn around and like I said, I I called the the therapist, but... uh, Guess what? They don't they don't answer the phone and they don't return calls. So it's it's just a a haphazard situation and it just really pees me off. Well, again, and sometimes the listeners are really quite helpful on some of these very basic needs out in the community. And if we're able to help satisfy it, we'll do what we can for you, Rob. I appreciate the the concern and the call, I'm a little confused as to why it's so complicated to deal with Eastern Health on the very basics here. We're not talking about uh, hard-to-come-by items. Uh, anything else very quickly before I take another call? Yeah, no, no, that's good. And uh, go on, and you got my number there, so yep. if anybody can give me a call, I'm, I appreciate it. I appreciate your time. Thanks, Rob. Good luck. Thanks, Patty. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, final word this morning goes to line number five. Good morning, Tina. You're on the air. Um, hi, Patty. Um, <laughs> at this point, I feel like I'm going to have to call in every time uh, something's mentioned about the sheriff's office via, from um, Jerry Earl or someone else from there. Uh, I want to address Mr. Earl coming out today and saying he's not surprised about the Auditor General report. In 2016... I had a meeting with Mr. Earl and another person that worked at NAPE who uh, was my shop steward slash ERO. 
And I told him a lot of stuff that was happening at the sheriff's office, including how the deputy sheriffs were being treated. Um, it's mind-boggling to me that he's only coming out now and saying he's not surprised because the auditor general has to come out and talk about it. Mr. Earl knew, even before 2016, uh, stuff that was going on at uh, the office of the high sheriff. Well, he obviously knew something because if he says in the news coverage and conversations with him that the time frame covered by the reports are 200% turnover in staff, then obviously there's a reason why the turnover was as high as that. Yes, Patty. Um, and I would like to say um, I've always expressed at the sheriff's office now <laughs> to my manager uh, and managers before how hard they had it and you know, sometimes situations arose where people would get upset in situations. I'll just use an example, people's toil, and they were getting upset about their toil balances that they want to pay down and stuff. Before I, I finished and left my job at the sheriff's office, there was literally a manager there, and Nate knew about this, trying to stop the deputy sheriffs from getting their toil paid out. This was the manager of the accounts department at the office of the high sheriff who had nothing to do with the court security section. Nate knew this. Um, this person was trying to stop them from getting our overtime hours earned out. So what they did at the sheriff's office was gave her part of my duties for her to do it, which she had no, it was, it was a totally different division. So my hands were tied in trying to help them get their toil paid out. Now, I I, I have I was told that uh, when I had left there, they pretty much dragged my name under the mud. I was, uh, you know, my character was defamed there because, you know, that's what they do in a workplace. Uh, when they're trying to target someone, they put the blame on them. I'm not going to go into details explaining what my job was because it was hard enough to try to keep up with trying to get stuff done. And um, all I will say was that a certain, my, my manager there, who was later promoted, which is, again, mind-boggling to me, had other ulterior motives that had nothing to do with work. I'll leave it there. Um, they knew this. But Mr. Earl, like, they throw the word proactive around so many times but they never follow it. He knew. 2012, there was deputy sheriffs laid off, and it was uh, it was a you know a little bit of an outcry or a big outcry over it, and they hired someone back. Patty, I was the I was one of the administrative staff for the court security section. People don't realize what the job entails when those people were laid off, and they had to be called in the office to lay it off. I sat with some of those people on the stairs while they cried leaning on my shoulder. It's, sorry, it's a bit emotional. It's not, there's so much more entailed in in their jobs and the stress they have to go through. And I've always said this when I worked there. Now, mm-hmm. before, Just because of the time on the clock, we'll have to leave it there for this morning, Tina. But the next uh, Office of the High Sheriff story that pops up, you're welcome back. Or on uh, any topic. 
Okay, I'll be calling back if I have if I feel like I have to okay. correct stuff. Thank you. No Pat. problem, Tina. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, Tina did indeed have the last word, and we will pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.